Um, yeah. So let's do a really awful intro. Hi, guys. Welcome to the Pulse of Fire Palette <laughs> podcast. Uh, with myself, Mr. Pro Dragon Fire, and also... Mr. Pulse Man. Good evening. <laughs> there we go. Um, <laughs> so this is basically going to be a bit of a series, I think. Um, just armchair chit-chat about basically anything motorsports uh whatever comes to mind um because obviously we've got our sim racing chads that are now in the real world jimmy broadbent and mm. mr uh, super gt don't know if you've seen those guys um i'll come on to those um they're actually doing wonders um i always like to start on home ground so i was actually going to lead us into some touring car kind of chit chat <laughs> um because they have just announced their new calendar for next year. Um, I don't know if you've seen seen the provisional calendar for next year. I have not seen um, next year's calendar. Hang on, I shall do Googling. Yeah, um, it's... I, I'll say it's largely um, much the same as basically this, this year's calendar. It's pretty similar. Um, wow. Apart from, obviously, they're, they're hoping that none of the races will be affected by this, you know, this pandemic thing. Um, <laughs> it's not like there's really anywhere else you can go. I mean, apart from Rockingham, which is mostly now car storage and houses, where there isn't really anything else in the country you can go to. It's a shame, isn't it, really? Oh, it is. Fair. It really is. Rockingham was a great, great venue. It even hosted, what did it host? It hosted the European NASCAR, uh, yeah. which that has the, uh, for some reason, Jack Villeneuve races in that, and I still don't know why, but he does. Well, there are people um, out there that like going really, really, really fast and just turning left. I don't understand it personally, and I know I've probably just pissed off our entire American audience, the or two of them. Hi, um, but I've never, I've never understood the appeal in going round and round in circles. I like the technical challenge of a track, but Rockingham had a track infield as well. Might not have been the best or most technical track in the world, but it was all right. It was good. So, I, I mean, it certainly provided some entertaining like BTCC races. Mm. Um, there's also some big accidents there, if I remember correctly, because <laughs> uh, didn't they have to swoop off the uh, oval into a hairpin turn? They did. There yeah. Was, <laughs> there were some great crashes down there. I don't, can you call an accident great in this like safety era? I don't know, but. Yeah, fuck it. Yeah. Of course you can. Um, yeah. yeah, by the way, they'll be swearing in this podcast. Um, or it depends if Pro Dragonfire decides to beep it out. I'll leave that to him. But yeah, but of course you can call a crash great. There's still people out there that watch for a crash. And let's face it, I don't think I've ever watched a BTCC weekend without some kind of a massive crash or off somewhere. No, this is true. I think that's actually part of the allure yeah. of uh, touring cars, to be fair. Because, uh, not be funny, but when you've got Matt Neal and Jason Plato going wheel to wheel, you can guarantee they're going to be smashing the hell out of each other there. And we know it's popular because if you look at any intro to any BTCC programme, when it was on the BBC, when it moved to ITV or, or what have you, the, the sort of the the uh, the clips that they would roll before they actually started talking was always a crash. There was always James Thompson's crash at Donington in there. There was always Giovinazzi rolling his Alfa Romeo. It was, that was the appeal. That was the allure. Yeah. Um, uh, to be honest, that aspect of BTCC hasn't changed even now. Um, no. Although I will say what has changed with BTCC is I was, I was watching the races at Brands Hatch Indy just gone. Hmm. And 
I, I and it, down the side on the graphics now they actually now list who's an independent driver and who's a manufacturer. <laughs> and out of the top fifteen drivers on the grid, the top twelve were all independents, and the manufacturers were running way down the order. Um, yeah, uh, it's it, we, we've lost that manufacturer era. It would seem. But you know what? Um, we we say we've lost it. That was that was twenty years ago, and oh god, yeah. You know, if you think back to the super touring era, where you had what Nissan, Ford, Vauxhall, Peugeot, uh, Renault, all fielding two cars. I mean, when Renault, for fuck's sake, were partnered with Williams F1 team to make their car as good as they possibly could. I mean, those yes. were some amazing cars and some amazing races. But that all died in two thousand and one, and then you Vauxhall were the only manufacturer to stay. And they then became the team egg cars and this, that and the other oh. when egg bank was a thing. But at that point, they weren't really manufacturers in my eyes. The, well, I say Vauxhall were the only ones today. Steve Soper was still driving a, a light, bright yellow 406 coupe for a Peugeot works team for a little while. Because he had oh. a career ending accident at, um, at Brands Hatch, didn't he? Uh, yes, he did. Uh, actually, do you know what? That, 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 I always remember that Peugeot more from uh, the Toka race driver game it was set around that time yeah. because in fairness the color of that was that it almost was the same as that the year 2000 minardi from formula 1 that bright fluorescent thing yeah it it was highlighter yellow yeah and it wasn't a particularly beautiful car <laughs> it didn't carry it well no it did not and it and it didn't perform very well either but also oh, shocking. didn't mg still have a car around about that time i'm sure mg were putting in what, that, was it yes, the zt whatever the rover 400 was wasn't that wasn't that when colin turkington first came in because he was running for mg wasn't he as well, one of his first rides i think he might have been i'm just looking i've just found a picture in front of me of the mg because it was that sort of green and gray mg colors that they were using at the time yes um right before they a, went bust there was an awful uh, Alfa Romeo 147 as oh, well. The least reliable car in history. Yes, yes. And needless to say, it didn't do much more in British touring cars. <laughs> <laughs> just, I just remember it limping around in last place the majority of the times it was on camera. Yeah. <laughs> Here we go. So it wasn't the ZT, it was the ZS, which was whatever the Rover 400 version was. Which, in fairness, oh. and this is something that really fucking bugs me. The MGZS Rover 400, whatever you want to call it, was a four-door saloon. This is all about British Touring Car Championship. It used to be the British Saloon Car Championship. People forget that because it's all fucking hatchbacks now. Um, yes. And that's not really a touring car to me. But notable drivers, in fairness, it's a decent list. So there's a couple of people I've never heard of. But Rob Collard, Anthony oh, Reid, yeah. and Colin Turkington. Oh, Anthony Reid, God, that is a name. Um, yeah, see, Colin takes it, I told you. And yeah. look at the success he's gone on to have. He's he's had a great career. Well, he's going to go down as one of the best touring car drivers of all time, surely. Why, well, he, has he got the record now for titles? Is he the most successful Ooh. driver in terms of titles? Oh, he sure might be. he's up there, because I'm sure, did he not win another title? Uh, I'm sure he's up there. I mean, Rob Collard's gone on. I don't know if you've noticed, uh, Rob Collard, uh, and the only reason I know this is because he appeared in the ACC update, but he went, he's been racing in the uh, GT World Series. Um, didn't realise he'd made the transition 
across oh. to endurance racing. Okay, well, I mean, it sort of makes sense because his um, his sons do endurance race endurance racing, don't they? Uh, yes, I think <laughs> I think I don't know if they're at the same team. I think they might have been rivals. I'm sure they're in rival cars. So I could have sworn. <laughs> is it Ricky Collard? I thought Ricky Collard Ricky and Rob Collard had driven together in the same car. They may have done. I know Andy Prio has with his son Sebastian. Because um, they ran a Ford Mustang uh, last year. That was quite interesting. Um, mm. they, were, they were quite successful together as well. Mm. Uh, interesting. Here we go. Colin Turkington. So, oh, are you looking up championship wins? I, I was looking at his championship wins. So um, I can give you the number because I've already done it. He, oh, go on. he is joint first for the most amount of drivers' championships with four. Wow. He is joint with someone else who I'll give you the name because I think we we could be guessing for ages because there's been so many legendary touring car drivers. But he's sort of he's the godfather of the modern age of touring cars, as far as I'm concerned, Mister Andy Rouse. Andy Rouse, yes. See, uh, there was some great footage, and I remember Murray Walker commentating, especially on his kind of era. Mm. Oh, there's some cracking. Wasn't that? And Cleland was behind, and Murray was like, and he's going for first. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, Rousey was involved in that. But the thing is, I mean, Rousey won his first championship in 75 and his last one in 85. But the fact that he's only won four titles, I think, belies the fact that if he wasn't winning, a car that he had developed or worked on was winning instead. Because all those Cozzies, all those Sierra IS 500s, were all Andy Rouse specials. Wow, that's quite impressive. Yeah, man's a legend. Absolute legend. Well, yeah. Yeah, definitely so. Um, what did you find out on Collard? Was it his son? Or are they not related? <sighs> oh, well, no, Ricky Collard is his son. Um, okay. What I can't find out is whether they have definitely raced together. And hey, I'm sure someone in the comments will let us know and tell us that we're being idiots. But I was uh, fairly sure they had. They may well have done. I mean, just, I'm just, I've just looked at Ricky Collard. So last year... Do you know what? Ricky Collard didn't race in that many events last year. No, he didn't. Uh, what's that? One, two, three, four, five races in total last year? Mm. Uh, Barwell Motorsport. I'm pretty sure that's who Rob Collard was running with. So maybe they have. Maybe. Uh, but I, what I will say is that obviously what people do forget is that Ricky Collard finished as the runner-up in the um, MSA Formula Championship to one and only Lando Norris. Yeah. yeah. Well, was... pe people do forget, you know, just because he's the son of a famous racing driver, people think he's just got there off the back of his dad's coattails. It's not always the case. He's there on merit. Yeah, yeah, this is true. This is very true. I mean, so, you know... I'm going to answer our previous question. Barwell Motorsport, Lamborghini Huracan, GT3 Evo, car number 77, driven by Rob Collard and Ricky Collard, with Sandy Mitchell and Leo Machitsky, who I don't know. Oh, I don't know about don't know the last one. No. Um, no. That, that, yeah, okay. But still, there you go. That's, mm. that's pretty impressive. Yeah, well, the only other... The only other father-son duo I particularly know about, and I don't know when the last time they drove together was, but of course Martin and Alex Brundle. They've done a few... Um, I'm sure they've done some Le Mans entries together. They, I'm sure they did. I mean, I can't remember the last time 
when did well, didn't they do there was one pretty recently because i remember sky f1 doing a, a thing on it um did 24 hours of the nordschleifer i'm sure he raced with his son in that in an aston martin gt4 i'm um, sure they were together in that yeah he might have done he might have um, done I mean, that the apple actually... doesn't fall far from the tree. No. So, I mean, I, I know this conversation will get to F1 at some point because we are both F1 fans. But when you watch the F1 weekend and you hear Martin Brundle commentate on the qualifying and the F1 race, and then you hear Alex Brundle commentating on the uh, on the Junior Series, it just sounds like a mini Martin. It's amazing. It does. Yeah, it does. Um, 2016, that was when they last raced together. Oh, God, was uh, it that long ago? It was that long ago already. That's five years ago now. Yeah. Like, and they, they finished second place together, which is not bad. No, you're not going to knock that, are you? No, that's pretty That's pretty good. Um, yeah, Martin's not done anything since. Um, so his kind of racing days are uh, done. I mean, he's got his commentary career, so... Yeah, I mean, let's face it, he's not short of a bob or two. And, and actually, see, you've got to love Google for this sort of stuff. Martin Brundle, how old is the chap? He's got to be 63 or so. 62. Yeah. So, do you know what? 62 years no, old, I, I can't imagine being running around racing like I would have been when I was 20 or 30. No. Um, but, yeah, you know, you look at him he, and he's able to just jump into any F1 car he's given the chance to and he can still <laughs> drive it relatively bloody well <laughs> um yeah. like uh was it vettel said to him because he had to go in a ferrari at um their test track and uh vettel, vettel literally asked the question he was like is he what 60 something like that he's like oh i wish i, I wish i'm still being able to pick up rate f1 cars and race <laughs> when i'm his age you know um, he's got yeah. he's got a good point i mean yeah. not everyone can do what he does and I know he's got people who don't like him as well. But... Uh, you always do when you're in the public eye. There'll be people who like you and people that hate you. It's just sort of the nature of the beast, isn't it? But I think, yeah. and I, I know you and I both have some very strong opinions on this, you know, around pay drivers and people who are in a racing seat oh. that perhaps don't deserve to be there. Rags, I'm looking at you, mate. Um, but <laughs> generally speaking, if you think there's 20 cars on a Formula One uh, starting lineup, those should be the 20 best drivers in the world at that point. So just because Martin Brundle didn't win a title or, or didn't win a world championship, there was still a period of time for a number of years where he was voted as one of the best 20 drivers in the world. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, when he was given the chance, he was able to show that. I mean, it's, it's kind of, it's like almost like Johnny Herbert. Um, they both had accidents that damage their ankles and mm. you just think with how good they both were at the time when you know after injury they still were capable of being at the sharp end picking up podiums if they hadn't had the injuries where would they have been it's always an interesting one um always quite a, it is yeah, it's it's so, there's so many what ifs that you could ask in that but you know if this sounds like a really strange thing to say, but you know, if you if you step down from F one to a slightly slower world, like the twenty four hours of Le Mans, perhaps, which is slightly slower than F one, but let's face it, not by much. Don't forget, Johnny Herbert won uh, the twenty four hours of Le Mans in the Mazda seven eight seven B back in ninety one. 
Yes, yes, he did. Uh, and, and let's not forget as well, Martin also won Le Mans in mm-hmm. the the legendary and I, a beautiful like livery. It's, just, it's always one that stands out. The silk cut jacket. Oh yes, <laughs> yeah. What was that? The was it the XJ nineteen? What did they call that thing? Uh, the X, I think it was the XJR9, was that the XJR9? Yeah, that sounds about right, but that was back in the day, and this is me showing my age and being a miserable old man now, FYI, anyone listening to this podcast, you'll hear that a lot from me, but that was back in the day when they were proper prototypes, they looked different and they were pushing the envelope and they had proper engines in them, none of this electric nonsense, um, they were just amazing cars, yeah, I mean, Oh, hang on. Yeah. The XJR9 LM is not what he won in, though. It was the XJR12, which was a slightly updated version of it. Yeah, didn't they bring, like, extra... It was... I've got to say, it, it looked like it was on the verge of, you know, flouting the sort of ground effect rules. So just, <laughs> I'm looking at the car, and it's got the side skirting on it, the rear wheels are enclosed. Mm. You know, yeah. really groundbreaking. I mean, we, we don't get cars like that anymore. Even with this new hypercar era that they've kind of brought in. Um, But then at some tracks, the hypercar is slower than the LMP2 class, which is kind of a bit like, okay, that's... Mm -hmm. That's a bit worrying. Um, That's not how it should work. No, yeah, I want to, you know the top class should be the top class. It should be the one that's yeah. pushing the boundaries. But well, so looking at it, I hadn't necessarily appreciated this at the time. But looking at the the XJR12 Jag and the XJR9 LM, they're Group C cars. So you know, Le Mans was part of Group C, and that's fine. But Group C, sort of the same as Group B rallying was really defined that era and pushed technical developments for cars in a very specific direction to the point where people argued they were too fast and it was unsustainable due to cost and we had to pull it back for danger and financial reasons so yeah where would we be having not had group c and i'm sure there's a lot of people out there that really lament and and miss it and wish it was still a thing well, yeah, and that, that kind of also hocks to the, you know, going back to touring cars, like the super touring era. Yeah. The, cost, the, the costs were spiralling. Oh, well, yeah. Well, Renault, they were spending something ridiculous on their car, weren't they? Some, like, millions and millions of pounds. Yeah, they. I can't remember the exact figure, but they once quoted that they were spending millions. And, you know, this is back in the day when, you know, touring cars was about people pulling a mini out the back of a truck or that they towed up from their home down south and they'd spent a couple of weekends building it up and and getting it ready to go racing it wasn't that much of a stretch from that era um but yeah and i think i remember so i have read jason plato's autobiography i'm not a big fan of autobiographies as a rule but plato's was a good yarn i enjoyed reading that and he talked about how the the teams would turn up in their huge motorhomes and there'd be, you know, pit girls and grid girls and there'd be PR everywhere and whole whole PR teams dedicated just to keeping this part of the team running. And he can remember 10, maybe 15 years before that, it was just guys in caravans popping up. You know, it was just worlds apart. Yeah, complete transformation. Because yeah. um, there's rules and regulations now around motorhomes. Uh, I don't know if you saw all this rule change get... 
I don't know. I don't know why it's part of the rules, but it is. Um, <laughs> but for all variations of motorsport, the teams have to have a motorhome within a certain size limit now because they were, <laughs> because they were getting too extravagant. <laughs> I find that incredible. Oh incredible God. to think. Um, yeah, that's Some, how bizarre. Someone should have a word with the F1 paddock. I'm sure they'd love that. Well, you see, this is it. So the ruling came into place because of F1. <laughs> that, that's why it's in place. So like, you can't you can't now go more than three stories in height, you know, because teams were building basically a fucking tower in the back of the paddock. <laughs> you know, I mean, you saw the size like, the, for instance, the McLaren motorhome that was fucking fully automatic sliding doors and mm. all this bollocks. I mean, it's like basically a mobile hotel, essentially. <laughs> Well, but this this is something I've always struggled with because I've I've never understood the need for certain extravagance and frivolities with this sort of stuff. I mean, the mechanic, uh, the McLaren Center in Woking is a really beautiful, really ornate building, but it would have cost millions to design, and that's probably just what they paid the piss in architect to design the thing, let alone putting down the bricks and mortar. Was that best use of their money? I mean, let's face it, they've um, they've effectively mortgaged it at the moment. They've sold it off and released the equity from it in order to keep themselves afloat. And do you think, was that the right thing to do? Yeah. I, it's, it's a, yeah, it's a difficult one. Because, I mean, that... Uh, I guess that, cause that was built in a different era, but now obviously mm. in the era of cost-cutting, I think... Teams that have gone to these extravagant levels are really going to struggle to hem that that sort of cost reduction in now, because they've obviously got bigger venues than anyone else, mm-hmm. more more expensive facilities. They've got their own. What well, McLaren got their own wind tunnel, haven't they? Built in underground. Yes, they do. Because um, that's what the the lake is for to cool the the, the, the wind tunnel. Is it really? That is what it's for. It's the cool. Yeah, that is the water that they pump through the system to cool down the wind tunnel when it's in use. Amazing. I'd always just assumed it was a um, you know an aesthetic choice to make it look pretty. I didn't realise it served a functional purpose. <laughs> oh no no, there's a, there's a genuine functional purpose to it. Um, so all of the cooling in their building is it, it they use the lake to basically like pump through the system and it provides all the cooling. Uh, it's a remarkable, like feat of engineering, but uh, like the situation they find themselves in now. I mean, obviously uh, the, the results have improved, but they have. I just it's it's worrying on the cost front if they've got to scale down, and um, you know. Well, didn't they? I'm sure they've actually sold some of their cars and didn't Williams did something very similar last year as well mm. and it's all been done in a fairly underhanded and, and odd way in that they've sold yeah. them but they still remain where they are but they're actually owned by someone else and they're sort of leased back to McLaren it, yeah it's, it's all kind of hollow, isn't it? It's very ugh. well. It all feels very much like a multi-million company payday loan. You know, <laughs> like the APR will be seven thousand four hundred and twenty-nine percent. But don't worry, you can still keep living where you are. You can still keep your cars. We'll just own them and take them off you in four years' time when you can't afford the repayments. Yeah, uh, I, I just wouldn't want to go down that route. No. Oh, it's worrying. Very worrying. And of course, I mean, we'll, pro- we'll probably come more into F one in full bit later but uh obviously they also lost um what's his face the the um one of the owners uh oh he, he didn't didn't get along with uh ron dennis 
um, towards the sort of latter part of his tenure. So I'm going to butcher this guy's name, which is terrible. But it, Mansour OJ. OJ, that's it. That's the one. Yes. Yeah, and actually, only 68. Yeah. No age at all. No, no it's not. All. No, it's not. And I've got to say though, I mean that that guy. It, he he bled motorsport through and through, mm. um, but because I guess because him and Ron Dennis were such sort of powerful individuals, there was inevitably going to be a clash of power there. And yeah. you know, in its prime, don't get me wrong. Like when you look at that in its prime, th their partnership was bulletproof, absolutely brilliant. Well, go back to eighty eight, eighty nine. You know, what we're we talking about, 15 out of 16 race wins for that car. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the only one they didn't win was because <laughs> Sarah and Prost took each other out in Suzuka. Yeah. You know, I mean, you don't get much more dominant than that McLaren-Honda era of the late 80s, early 90s. And that's, see, we're, we're verging back into F1 quite easily now. It's sort of a natural thing for us, isn't it? But that's what I had high hopes for when Alonso returned to McLaren and they re-announced the McLaren-Honda uh, regime again. And uh, given their dues, McLaren persevered with that contract for a really long time. There was at least three seasons and those famous memes and images of Fernando Alonso lounging at Interlagos in the middle of the track on a on a deck chair but it just wasn't competitive enough and they had to pull the plug and it was such a shame because there was a real opportunity lost there yeah yeah and i think that's that's kind of been proven even more now with look at look at looking at where honda are now with red bull and you just think mm. oh what could have been you know what could have been um, well, but I don't think we're going to see that lasting much more because Honda officially pulled out at the beginning of the season and Red Bull have bought the rights to that engine, yes. which is why they're now buying up engineers and technical boards because they, they know they're going to have to keep developing that for the rest of the season. And then presumably they'll they'll move to something new or different next year or they'll try and reconstitute the design into something that fits into the new model. Yeah, I, I'm... I'm excited to see where that goes, actually, to be fair, because um, I think if any team on the grid can pull off the making of their own engine, bearing in mind who their technical director is, mm. uh, the, you know, the, the Adrian Newey, the, the god of curves and aerodynamics, um, I am very excited to see just what they can pull off, because, I mean, it's not like... Uh, what's his name Mataschitz the, the Red Bull boss is short of a few pennies <laughs> you know if they need you know like they're building a, uh, they're literally building in Milton Keynes right now a, a whole new fucking factory to build an engine in uh, it's just ridiculous mm. but he could just literally just yeah there's a check off you go go and do what you need to do you know it's well, I feel sorry for Williams in that respect because they can't just go, yeah, let's build a whole... Oh. <laughs> yeah. You know. But, but is Newey yeah. still as active as he once was? Because I know he was heavily involved in the Aston Martin Vulcan. And yes, he sort of... It feels like he stepped away and took a bit of a sabbatical. And I'm, I know Red Bull have said he's definitely going to be around and, and with the team. But is he quite in the position that he was? It, it, the dynamic of Red Bull's changed. I mean, I was, I was speaking to a good friend of mine, uh, Dan. You might know him, Dan Drury. Yeah, you know Dan. I know Delhi. 
Yeah, and it, obviously he now works for the Red Bull Formula One team. That's he where he works. Does indeed. Um, and you know, he was. I mean, it, we talk every now and again, not not like all the time anymore. He used to game with us a lot, hmm. but um, it, like in testing, he goes down. He actually gets a chance to go down the track, and he's like this tech guru. Guru plugs the computer in and starts up the engine, all that kind of shit. You mm -hmm. know, it's fascinating stuff. But like, I was having a discussion with him, and like, you know. He's saying Adrian Newey is still involved, very much so, but more behind the scenes now than he... Because he used to be quite, you know, the, one of the faces of Red Bull. He was always on the podium, like, up there getting a trophy, or he was on the pit wall, you mm. know. He's always always sort of around. He's still very much designing the cars, old style, with the old drawing board and everything, where <laughs> other, des other designers... Uh, the, the one that stands out as being the worst Nick Worth of the Virgin Racing car that, that decided I can design it all purely on a computer and I don't need to wind tunnel and then they get to Australia in 2010 and oh I've designed the car too small so therefore we can't fuel the car to the end so you're going to have to run in lean mix for the entire race uh, you know yeah. there's a lot to be said for a, an old school like pencil and paper and yeah. just fucking draw shit like it's so it's weird how his mind works but he always produces the goods what he does i mean but i mean let's face it he's been around doing this since the late 80s so he's seen and yes. come up with that design i mean the computer-aided design that was around in the late 80s is not a patch on what we have available to us now but i mean what was his first he did the um the fw14b he did, he so, did, but he was March late in house before that, wasn't he? So yeah, I think he was at March before that. I was thinking more about his first championship winning car because he oh, was at okay. he was at Williams throughout that really dominant era of Mansell, yes. Senna, Hill. Um, yeah, and I mean those were some some challenging cars because that was around about the time of the active aero, active suspension, and and things were a little bit tricky, especially when they were banned. <laughs> but. Um, well, I suppose it's it's one of those things. It was my era. That's that's very much what I grew up watching. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, obviously, I, I'm a little bit behind that. I kind of know him more for the, the like the, the McLaren days, and then after years with them getting poached by Red Bull of all people, mm. which was just like a jaw dropping moment when that was announced that he was going to Red Bull. Uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> So, do you know what? I'm going to make a, a really bold statement here, and I have no proof or evidence to back this up, but it's always been a firm belief of mine. I think one of the most underrated characters in helping Red Bull to get to where they are today is David Coulthard. Yeah. Because he yeah, moved really from... Uh, he actually he went straight from the McLaren to the Red Bull, didn't he? Yes. There wasn't yes, anything in between, yeah. Um, so McLaren, still at the time, a competitive car. He still could have competed for stuff. He was obviously starting to wind down his career a little bit. The time had come. But he, he dragged what was a fairly mediocre Jaguar into the Red Bull era and, and saw that development through. And I'm sure he retired and it was the following year was the first time Red Bull won a title. Now, I'm... Uh... I'll, I'm going to have to Google that to see if I'm right. So, so Coulthard retired from... So his last actual season of racing was 2008. But wasn't Sebastian uh, Vettel's first championship winning season 2009? 
No, that's Jensen Button. How could you? Oh, of course. Well, the... well ah, but in however, fairness, Vettel was second in that season then, wasn't he? He was, he was. Yeah. And what I will say is is that David Coulthard did stay on as the test driver for 2009 for Red Bull. Okay. So you can say, quite legitimately, that Coulthard was a driving force behind that team. Yeah. Um, getting to where it, it, well, where it ultimately got to. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, yeah, his career was definitely on the wind down when you look at his points totals for the seasons. But yeah, yeah I mean, still that, done his bit. that comes that comes with a lot of things, you know. When you, when you're young, there's always this sort of live fast, die young mentality that is associated with male male gender. So, you know, as a young man driving a Formula One car in the early '90s for the first time ever, you know he can afford to drive it like his hair's on fire and hope for the best. Once you're married, you've got kids and you've got things on the line, and you're getting a bit older, a bit wiser. Plus, your reflexes aren't quite what they used to be. There's always going to be a bit of a downturn. I mean, I still stand by this. I think the turning point in Coulthard's career was the plane accident. That when he had that plane accident in 2001 bearing in mind he was in the form of his life at the beginning of the season mm. and you know he was right up there with Schumacher after that if you look at his results he wasn't quite as cutthroat with his manoeuvres wasn't quite as risky as he was before surviving the plane crash okay uh, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting thing and I think like I think Murray Walker at some point made some comment on it and he said, you know, something like that, though, will undoubtedly change your perspective on life. Mm. And, and yeah, I think, I think I'm sure it's Murray Walker who said that. But, you know, obviously don't quote me. Um, <laughs> you heard but, it here, folks. It's a direct yeah, quote. Yeah. He said it. He said it. <laughs> I said it, but I was looking at it in a bit more detail. I was thinking, yeah, do you know what? He wasn't as cutthroat. He wasn't as, like, he wasn't just going to, like, when him and Schumacher, you when he used to battle with Schumacher, and they'd be like touching wheels and stuff like that. That that kind of disappeared from Coulthard's sort of aggressive nature of like, right, I'm getting the move done now, and he was a bit more risk averse. Okay. Um, I mean, interesting. I I could see it. I could see it. It's not something that's ever crossed my mind before, but I could, I could absolutely see it. But I mean, when you talk to me about Schumacher and Coulthard, there's only one image that comes to mind which is Schumacher coming up to I believe lap David Coulthard at Spa in the pouring yeah. rain and then DC lifting and Schumacher smashing into the back of them <laughs> and taking them both out of the race yeah. and then the famous pictures of, of Schumi marching down the pit lane trying to find him <laughs> yeah yeah spot on that was around about 2001 wasn't it uh that was 98 was it really that was 98, yeah, that was 98. Because that is when Damon Hill and Ralph Schumacher finished 1-2 for Jordan. So Yes, yeah. Tell Eddie, tell Eddie, if we race, we could lose this. <laughs> but if we stay yeah. as we are, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I remember that. Yeah, that legendary thing. Um, here's one for you then. So, David Coulthard, mm-hmm. last one won a race. Ooh, where's he... Win a race. Let's have a look. Just looking at David Coulthard. So, after his crash in his his airplane crash in two thousand and one, he only went on to win two more races after that. Wow. He only won two more races after his plane crash. 
But see, interestingly, yeah, I, I don't remember DC spending a lot of time on the top step of the podium. I remember him always being on the podium, but Mika was your lead driver oh. around about that time, you know, the, the flying fin. So he was glorious. Oh, wasn't he just? I always hoped he would come back. He did that sort of, I'm not retiring, I'm just taking a brief sabbatical. And I always hoped he would take a year or two out and come back, and he never did, the bastard. Um, But yeah, DC would always be second to Mika or third when Shumi was around. So he was always on the podium. He was always there or thereabouts in the mix, but sort of a bit bit like a Mark Webber in that respect. Sort of always the bridesmaid, never the bride. Yeah, I mean, 13 race wins. I think that's the same as Webber, isn't it? 13? Probably is, Um, actually. But 62 podiums for DC. Yeah. I mean, that's not a bad return. It's not. It's not. And he's had 12 pole positions and 18 fastest laps, which is still not a bad, not a bad thing. Well, um, but it goes back to what I said earlier, you know, for what was he, 94, because he came in as the test driver when Senna died. And he would have been in, we're saying, until 2010, give or take. So 16 years, he would have been one of the top-rated drivers in the world for 16 years, and of those top-rated 20, on 62 individual races, he was in the top three. Yeah. Uh, yeah you can't knock that. You just can't no. knock it. No. No. And, yeah, some people always sort of say, oh, he should have achieved more, but then when you look at the, the drivers around in his era, <laughs> like, fucking good luck. Cause, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know. Ah. Uh. Yeah, DC. And of course, he's in the new F1 game. He's one of the drivers you can hire in the new F1 game. Oh, is uh, he really? If you, buy, if you buy the Legends pack, he is one of the extra drivers they've included. <laughs> and I'll tell you what, they, they've kept, they, he, looks, he looks like DC does now. He's not a young DC. He is, <laughs> he's very much an ageing DC. <laughs> And it's the same for Alan Prost, who is also in that pack. Um, so, yeah. oh, the, the last time I saw Alan Prost on TV, he looked nearly dead. I thought someone was carting him off in a wheelchair. It was shocking. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's, he's not aged gracefully, that's he, for sure. He's really not. He's really not. No. <clears throat> BC, yeah. I always struggled with this. So um, I always liked Alan Prost. And growing up, my dad was a massive Alan Prost fan. Once I got to an age where I started to form my own opinions rather than just do whatever my dad's opinions were, I became very much the Senna fan. And therefore, you always naturally align yourself with whoever it is you like the most. So when Senna and Prost had their little tete-a-tete, I came down on the side of Senna and therefore lost a bit of love for Prost. I know they made up in years to come, but... Yeah. Mm, yeah. I. I mean, we, we, the thing is, we haven't had a rivalry really in a while that's been sort of where they're willing to just drive each other off the fucking track. You know, we've, we've not had that. Do you mean in the same team? Yeah. I mean, like you. Had, don't forget, you had like Rosberg and Hamilton, which was that got quite. Tense, yeah. <laughs> I think it's fair to say. Weber I mean, and the, Vettel. Weber and Vettel. Now, the one that stands out for me is Turkey. Uh... Um, where they come barreling down the end of the straight into that hairpin. Oh, yes. Oh, and they yeah. just angled and. Oh, I just. 
See, I always oh. think of, I, I forget the track. I'm fairly sure it was Malaysia. That was in Malaysia, Multi 21. Multi 21, yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. So that, that and, for uh, me was the start of the breakdown there. It, oh, it was. And it only got worse from there because they got to Silverstone where it was meant to be Weber's turn to have the new part and they gave the new front wing to Vettel. Mm-hmm. And that's when Weber went out there and. Fair play to the lad with the the older front wing, just decimated the fucking field and took the win and jumps on the radio. Not bad for a number two driver, eh? <laughs> yes, I remember that. Not bad for a number two driver. I was just thinking, oh. oh, you know, that is when the tensions in, were getting. Yeah. They were getting pretty tense. But. But so never, going back you know, before that, then, so you could argue Hackenden and Schumacher, but I think Hackenden was too composed for that kind of a rivalry. There was a little bit there, yeah. but not in the same level. the The only other one before yeah. that for me would be Damon and Schumacher for those couple of years. I still vividly yes. remember Schumi going off. <laughs> it, it was it wasn't Melbourne. It was Adelaide. It was the last Australian Adelaide. He went off, rejoined. Hill went to overtake him, and Schumacher took him out. Nearly yes. flipped his own car in the process. I mean, that was that was the start of a really challenging period between the two of them. Oh, it was that, and that actually made that kind of few years of Formula One. Mm. And I think, actually, to be fair, following obviously everything that happened with Senna, it mm. needed something like that, and that they fucking provided. I tell you, they like yeah. they took each other out of what Silverstone as well, coming out of Bridge. Where Damon went for that ridiculous move up the inside that was never on, but just yeah. launches it up the inside anyway. And well, Schumacher had some mixed luck yeah. at Silverstone because it was um, he went straight on at Stowe Corner. That's where he broke his legs. Yes. Yes. Um, yes. And was it was it Mika Salo they got to drive his car? Yeah. Yeah. So Irvine obviously become the de facto team leader. Yeah. And uh, Mika Salo then, and that was quite an interesting one because obviously. Uh, Mika Salo, I don't know if you follow him on Twitch because he's got his own Twitch community now. Does he really? Um, oh right, I've yeah, got to, oh, I've yeah. got to see this. And he streams Dirt Rally. That is what he streams. That's what he does. And I tell you ah. what, he's shit hot at it. But he had a discussion on one of his streams, and there was actually a whole behind-the-scenes rigmarole to actually get him in the car. So, although he was Ferrari's reserve driver. He had actually been loaned to BAR for the 1999 season to be one of their development drivers. And BAR didn't want to release him to go back to Ferrari. Um, (laughs) And it was basically, I don't know what happened, but in the end it all worked out. Um, And so Salo jumps in that car, because obviously Salo should have won the German Grand Prix. He should. He should have done. And even Irvine has said that. You know, and not Every driver would have slowed down that amount to let Irvine through to win that race. No, no, absolutely. You know, if you you had someone who was a bit more, I don't know, pig-headed and wanted to basically take a victory, but legitimately, he should have won that race. And I I always wonder what Salo would have done given the proper equipment. Ferrari were always very lucky with their number two drivers. I mean, think about Rubens Barrichello backing off at the line at Austria uh, and the whole hoo-ha that that caused. Massa and Alonso, 
yeah. Alonso is faster than you. Confirm you've understood this message. I mean, yeah, they've they've always done this sort of shit. They've always had a number one and a number two. It's never going to be an equal footing there. I'd argue that behind the scenes there is a favouritism for Charles Leclerc over Carlos Sainz Jr. at Ferrari at the moment. Um, and I, I just, I don't see that as an equal footing. There is one driver there that is favoured more than the other. Mm. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, I mean, fair play to Carlos. I mean, he's, he's getting his head down and just cracking on with the job. Yeah. And he's a handy racer. I mean, yeah. correct me if I'm wrong, though, but I found it a very surprising move when it was announced he was going to Ferrari. Uh, <sighs> I didn't see that one initially anywhere. You know, I didn't. Zach, Zach, Zach Brown had made references to we're building the future with Lando and Carlos, mm. uh, and I kind of just you know it was taken that okay, well this is the partnership McLaren are going with, mm. and then the next thing we know is oh there's rumours that Carlos is going to Ferrari to replace Vettel. And I was like what? Mm. <laughs> Where's that suddenly come from? But yeah. Well, it was sort of, I mean, that was silly season, wasn't it? Because the it, the yeah. announcement that Seb wouldn't stay on came at just the most ridiculous time. Because what yes. was he driving for for the rest of the season? It was just yeah. bizarre. And, um, and that, show, that showed in his results, really. I mean, yeah. if you look at Vettel's results, uh, it was... He was nowhere. He was nowhere. Yeah, and he was, was he was constantly outperformed by Charles Leclerc. Um, yeah. So. It, it, it almost looked to have given up. Yeah. <laughs> you know... As a quick sidebar, whilst we were talking about Mika Salo and you mentioned he's on Twitch, obviously I've had to go and have a look and see his Twitch profile. This is something I think is just amazing. So I have a Twitch profile, you have a Twitch profile, lots of people stream, uh, and we all have some kind of a blurb underneath our name, you know, kind of, hi, I'm Pulsar Man, I play these kind of games, blah, blah, blah. come and join the fun, whatever. Mika Salo's blurb just says this, former Formula One Legend. <laughs> but is he wrong? <laughs> no, no, he's not wrong in the slightest. But there's there's something about being, you know, a little bit humble. It's obviously a very British thing to just, you know, be a little bit humble. And he yeah. he's not British. He's Finnish, so he can do whatever the fuck he wants. I I, I think that's meant in jest though, because he's always he's actually very like. He, he does take the piss out of himself on stream quite a lot. He, he does. He, he's he's kind of a meme lord. He's actually a bit of a meme lord when he's live. Oh, yeah. He, well. he kind of plays up to all the stereotypes. It's brilliant. Well, I've added my account to his list of 15,000 followers and I shall eagerly await his next stream so I can go and see what, it, what it's all about. The thing is, like, he's bloody good. <laughs> no, well. Yeah. Yeah, you don't just get to Formula One without some form of skill. So no, yeah. no, absolutely. And hey, when we're talking about Finnish Formula One drivers and Finnish rally drivers, I mean Mika Hakkinen has rallied, Kimi Raikkonen has rallied, Valtteri Bottas rallies when he has a chance. You know, it's it's sort of it's in their blood, it's in their nature. Yeah, it is. It is. Well, actually, saying that, how many Finnish World Rally champions have there been? Ooh, I mean, I mean you've got, got a handful there, haven't you? Well, I want to say Juha Kankinen, and then I'm re immediately worrying that he might not be finished. <laughs> but I'm sure, I'm sure he is. What about, what about Hervenen? Hervenen, was he not? He was... Oh, you see, let's... Oh, Christ. You, know, you, wanted, you wanted to move on to WRC champions now, are you? <laughs> wow. I'm, I'm sort of making that natural step, aren't I? So, no, I was right. So, Juha Kankinen. Um, yes. Timo yes. Salonen, so one of the 205 drivers. 
uh, Ari Vartanen and Marku Allen from back in the day. And then, of Can course, throw one in there. Go on. Tommy Mackinnon. Yeah. Tommy Mackinnon. The modern Was he not legend. Mitsubishi, something like that. I remember Mi- his game. He had some games out for a while, didn't he? He um, did indeed. Well, there is still one of the most valuable Mitsubishi Evo 6s is the Ma- is the Evo 6 Tommy Mackinnon edition. If you can get a TME, oh. they're worth a few quid. What about, um, there was one other, and I think he went on to race for Ford a lot recently. I don't know if he actually still is. He'd be getting on a bit now. Fucking. So you are I thinking of. Gro- is it Gronholm? Gronholm? Marcus it? Gronholm, yeah. He took two titles. He, he was in the Peugeot. He used to rally the 206 back in the day. I think yeah. I saw a little while ago he was temporarily managing the Ford team. No. I'm sure I saw that. I, don't, I think it was sort of. By proxy rather than by choice, I think the uh, the Ford team manager had stepped down and he'd filled in. Um, can I see anything about this? Made a return in the Pro Drive, limited appearance in the 2019 World Rally Championship where he drove the Toyota Gazoo Racing Yaris. Jesus! So he was still rallying yeah, in 2019. It was a one-off, though, wasn't it? Was that just a one-off? Well, probably. It, 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 it didn't go particularly well for him. I remember that. It wasn't like the return to glory that everyone was kind of, you know. No, hoping. no, it's it's too late in his career for that. But um, yeah. I'm sure he's been around. I've seen him in the paddock a few times. Probably has, in fairness. I mean, it seems to be kind of a natural progression for racing drivers now to sort of, you know, hmm. uh, progress to a behind-the-scenes kind of role. I mean... Look at the amount of teams that Nico Rosberg now owns. I mean, he's, he's got yeah. team. He's got, his, he's got his fingers in many pies. Albeit his dad Keke had already set up a number of them, but now it's kind of you know Rosberg's got his own Extreme E team. He's mm-hmm. you know same as well. Lewis Hamilton's got his own Extreme E team as Jetson Button. But uh, I think yeah. if, if it's in your blood, it's in your blood. I mean, we see it with yeah. footballers. The the amount of professional footballers that reach the pinnacle of their career and when they retire. They then either go to go on to become a coach or a manager or something similar to keep their hand in the game, or even a pundit. You know, we watched the yeah. football tonight, and Alan Shearer, Mika Richards, and oh. Roy Keane were all there with Gary Lineker. I mean, you know, all of those guys go apart from Mika Richards, they all go back a fair few years. So if you've got that passion, if it runs in your veins, you want to stick with it. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, shall we talk about the current? Formula One season since we sort of skirted all the way around. <laughs> we did. We talked about the better Formula One seasons. Ooh, so uh... <laughs> we did. We did. Well, this, year, this year is actually looking pretty tasty. I've got to say, it I tasty. I think this year's done. I I think I can predict the finishing positions this season already. So here's a bold one for you. Here's a bold one for you. Mm-hmm. So I was having this discussion. Um, God, who was I talking to? Let me have a look. It might well have been Fergie Master. I'm not sure. Okay. Good old Fergie. Um, but there was someone, anyway, from, from the gaming world that I was talking to. And I made the bold statement that if Hamilton does not win this year's championship, he will never win a championship again. Oh, okay. So I'm going to disagree with you on that then. <laughs> uh, oh. I, I've, I've gone down the Schumacher route here and I've said, I've said basically, he's reached seven. He's not going to win a, another title. <laughs> That was kind of, for me, that's kind of been rowing into sort of complete disarray because following that, Mercedes are now bringing some updates to their car and that worries me. (laughs) (laughs) They've got form. They've got form. So 
I'm going to go yeah. a different route. I, I, my thoughts now, as a, as a fan of Lewis, you know, anyone who knows me knows that I support Lewis, and I'm, I'm happy to see the Mercedes team win. I think Max is going to win his first title this season in the Red Bull. I think mm-hmm. Lewis is going to be the runner-up. I think Sergio is going to take bronze, and I think Valtteri is going to be in fourth, possibly in fifth. Lando Norris might end up pipping him. Just to... just from consistency. Yeah. Uh, I, I was thinking the same. Yeah, absolutely think so. And do you know what? I'm in complete agreement with your order there. Complete mm. agreement. And that doesn't happen very often. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it doesn't. Christ, what, well, hang on. What are we going to talk around for the next hour and a half? Shit, um... <laughs> uh, well, guys, thanks for the tune. <laughs> <laughs> well, but I have more. So I think okay. I think at the end of this season, I think that's bye-bye Valtteri. I think George yes. deserves the chance in that car, and he's going to get it. He's going to get that chance next year. I don't know where Valtteri will go. I don't know if he'll get another seat. I think he's still good enough to get another seat, but oh, it depends yeah. if one yeah. opens up. But I also know? think that Mercedes are reducing their investment in this year's car significantly and are already yep. focusing heavily on next year's rules. And I think... Even if Red Bull are doing that, I think they're going to have significant challenges engine-wise with a different chassis, a different width, ground effect, and everything else that comes with it. And I think the Mercedes will be the dominant car again next year with the rule changes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. That's you my know, prediction. Uh, what, uh, you, yeah. Um, I, I agree. I think, I think Red Bull have gone too much into car development this season i think they should have just knocked this one on the head mm. uh, bearing in mind they've got adrian Newey, like that is their weapon their weapon <laughs> you know, but for, for, for new technical regulations when it comes to aerodynamics adrian Newey is the man you want sitting in the office penning your designs oh absolutely yeah i couldn't think of um, anyone i'd want more frankly yeah no, absolutely. I mean, he does have a habit of making the rear end very tightly packaged and causing overheating issues. <laughs> but Red Bull have always managed to overcome that. And, you know, bear in mind it's going to be their own engine from next season. Mm. Well, kind of, sort of. I know Honda have agreed to maintain the engines until their facility is up and running, which is, yeah, that's a good deal. Yeah. Um, bear in mind where the engine has come to. Um, but. What I wanted to move on to with this, the subject of the engine as well, I, I don't know if you saw Lewis Hamilton coming out with some, some, some pretty sour comments. He's now, of all the people, bearing in mind Mercedes had party mode, he's now come <laughs> out and said Red Bull have got a hidden party mode on their engine. Uh, that's why they're so much faster at the moment. And I kind of just like, hmm. Lewis, mate, like, you're in the fight of your life now. This is, you know, you've got to earn your, earn your keep. Show us what these seven world titles are against a young whippersnapper like Max Verstappen, you know. So that's Uh, that's really interesting. I haven't mm. seen that claim. I will say I do think it's interesting that a fairly uncompetitive engine that managed to make its way onto a few podiums last year 
is suddenly now quicker than the engine that's been leading the field for the last five to six years. So something's happened there, and I'd find it a little hard to believe that little old Red Bull, with all their Formula One and aerodynamic might, are able to extract more out of an engine designed by Honda, who have been building cars for, well, probably the best part of 100 years now, I should imagine. I mean, Honda are, are not new to this yeah. game. So there's something interesting there. I'm not saying for one second I think there's any... Uh, legality issues um, and I've certainly heard the complaints about flexible wings which yes. is also nothing new for Red Bull they've been around this merry-go-round a few times with front wings back in Vettel's uh, era yes yes it is yeah, when it comes to well. the battles I don't know I this is where I really struggle with modern Formula One ever since they ha I understand DRS and it's great and it makes the racing nice and close what I loathe is the fact that we need DRS in order to make the racing close because we've made the cars so aerodynamically challenging that they're impossible to follow because of the dirty air yeah. they create in their wake and I really really hope with all of my being that these changes they're making next year to reduce some of that ornate aero, go back to a ground effect system, which is a really interesting one, and to increase the, the tyre size and reduce the wings to try and change the way the air is flowing over the car will allow us to go back to that close racing. Because I want to see natural slipstream. I want to see wheel-to-wheel -wheel racing. I don't want to hear, sorry boss, I've been behind him for three laps, my tyres are getting too hot and I just can't get close to them because of the dirty air, I'm going to have to drop back. That's not racing. Yeah. No. No, and, and that was shown in the last, in actually, the last race. Yeah. Um, what did you have? You had eighth, seventh, seventh place all the way through to P13, and they were just stuck in a train. And, yeah. you know, people were having to pull out of the toe of the other car in front just to get some cool air through. And you just think, oh, like, where where, where have we gone so wrong? You mm. know, uh, and it, it all does come down to the aero. The aero with all these little winglets and stuff, yeah, it makes your car go faster when it's on its own mm -hmm. but when you're trying to follow another car that it's it, well it makes it impossible we've seen it, it makes it bloody impossible and then we're led to sort of hope and pray for i don't know a, a mistake in the pits or you know something like that to change the order about and yeah it's just it's not genuine hard racing anymore where you could like the one that stands out for me, okay, let's go back to Mika Hakkinen, Michael Schumacher, mm -hmm. Bel Belgium, right? The distance that Hakkinen was back from the Ferrari, gets in the toe of the Ferrari, then the BAR of Ricardo Zonta, <laughs> who's yeah. sandwiched in the middle thinking, oh my fucking God, what do I do here? <laughs> you know, but that toe effect back then, uh, or that, you know, bearing in mind that was the dawn of when it started to really heavily become aero focused, hmm. but they were still able to slipstream back then, and you know that that proved it because he was fucking miles back. But when he got in that toe, my god, did that Mercedes engine in that McLaren fucking power him along? He oh, was didn't it just? So um, I I think there's a real sweet spot in in F1 mm. history where this happened because if you go back to your Jackie Stewart days and you know uh, even yeah. to some degree your James Hunt days the winner was the car that could create you the most reliable car because yes. not every car on the field would last 70 laps and it wasn't uncommon for 25 cars 26 cars to start and only 3 to finish. So yeah. that that's not the greatest era in my um in my personal opinion. And then the no. modern era where they are ultra-reliable 
but are so technical in their aero that even if you have a wheel to wheel incident and you lose one canard from the left hand side of your floor that's you yep. done for the entire race this is yes. bullshit as well the sort yeah. of the, the great era for me is the 80s and the 90s and i always think of people like nigel mansell i mean christ if you look at some of the modern athletes because let's face it that's what formula one drivers are now they are yeah. chiseled oh, yeah. athletes who spend their life in the gym nigel mansell was a mustached brummy who'd <laughs> be drinking a guinness and off down the golf course first chance he got but he drove that car with nothing more than grit determination and big balls and he would overtake you even if his car was slower and damaged and on fire because he would push that car further than anyone else was prepared to that was racing that's what it was about yeah 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 uh, i think that's yes very yeah well very legitimate to be honest because uh, uh, mansell was one of a kind he was <laughs> uh, tenacious shall we say um it's a good word as any yeah and just he just didn't give up like it's just you know i remember when he tried to push what was it his lotus across the bloody start finish line and he passed yeah. out that was uh, i want to say that was seattle but that was where it was so hot that they had to relay the track between qualifying and the race because it was melting and breaking up as the cars were going over it and he broke down it must have been the last lap just just by the finish line and tried to push it over and passed out from heat exhaustion i mean that that takes something there's there's people aren't made yeah. like that anymore there's something special there yeah absolutely and well, i guess that's why he's always referred to as r nige you know just, yeah. he endeared himself to the british fans um i still remember like fans would flood the, the, you know, the racetrack after the race had finished when he won a race, you know, especially Silverstone. <laughs> well, where they had to send a van to go and pick him up because he couldn't actually yeah. get back. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, it's just, like, insane because, like, don't get me wrong, Hamilton's got a big following, but they like, they never struck me as intense fans as much as Nigel had. They were never, never quite to that level where, you know, they just fucking invade and, like, party the hell out of like the, the track because yeah. right, he's won a race um i mean th 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 there is one saying that bugs me with hamilton i'm gonna say it every track he goes to he goes oh yeah these are the best fans in the world here it's like yeah he said that last race <laughs> <laughs> yeah so uh, i think lewis in the early part of his career was exactly like I would have been. He wore his heart on his sleeve. He was emotional. He said what came to mind. Sometimes that came across as really true and, and open and honest and people appreciate it. And sometimes it was, no, he's a fucking dickhead. I can't hate him. Did you see what the twat did to me on track? And obviously in the modern world, that's not very PC. So I think Lewis had, in the early days of his career, some very heavy guidance and rules to follow and a lot of pr training which i suspect he's still going under in some way shape or form which is steering him in in how he speaks and how he has to speak and that's also a sign of just the modern times we live in and and how we do have free speech but only if it agrees with everyone else's morals if it doesn't you can't say it <laughs> it's very true it's very true yeah 
There's, there's a can of worms. I'm going to put the lid back on quite quickly yeah, before yeah, anything yeah. else happens. We'll, we'll put that back in the cupboard. Yeah. <laughs> but let's not forget, when we talk about Nige, yeah. Nige came close to a couple of championship wins. You know, he had that famous yeah, tyre yeah. blowout. Uh, I think that was, I can't remember if it was PK or Prost won that year. That um, was heartbreaking. That was, yeah. Oh, it was. But obviously he eventually won in 92. And then yeah. immediately left Formula One to go over to America to drive in the Kart IndyCar series in '93, won yeah. the title over there, and was yeah. for a brief period the only person in the world to be the world champion in Kart and Formula One. And I don't think anyone's done that since. No, I. No, I could no because if you do it the other way round. Because the Formula One season continues after the American season has already finished. Because I was going to say, no, because even then that wouldn't even match up. No, so ignore me. No, no one has. No one has legitimately done that. Yeah. I think, he, yeah, he's the only one to simultaneously hold both crowns. There you go. Oh, what an achievement that is. That, that's remarkable. It is. It really is. And then, of course, he still came back after that because he, he had a couple of he did a couple of um, jobs in the ninety four Williams after Senna died. Yes. yes and then I remember he was supposed <laughs> to go to McLaren in ninety five. Uh. Was it him and Mario Andretti? I think I always remember Andretti being around, but it might not have been. And there were some issues where he'd bless him, he'd put on a little bit of timber and he was a bit too big to get in the car and they had to widen it slightly to get him in. And then I think he just threw in the towel and said, I've had enough now. Yeah, uh, I think because the, the race he did get in the car, it was it wasn't his finest performance. No. Um, no. And to be honest, that McLaren wasn't the finest of McLaren ever built. It was quite an ugly car, I thought. Um, probably one of their ugliest that they've built. Well, but yeah, it had, it had the traditional Marlboro livery, but the actual shape of it was. Uh... But I'm trying to think. So '95, that would have been. They wouldn't have been with Honda anymore. This is around about those failed relationships with Peugeot and their brief dally with Lamborghini engines. Do you remember that? Oh yeah, I mean. I'm sure. When did the? It was ninety five. Was the first year with Mercedes engines. Was it really? That was the first year with Mercedes. Yeah, that's because they they brought in a Mercedes engine to replace that Lamborghini piece of crap from ninety four. <laughs> um, it was dog shit. It really was a dog shit yeah. engine. Well, I mean, the Lamborghini deal was like they signed their their fucking death sentence from the beginning and they ended up actually moving to Peugeot didn't they part of the way through 94 mm. um, and yeah then they moved to Mercedes Benz although I mean you call it Mercedes Benz but that first engine in that McLaren that was badged a Mercedes Benz that was actually an Ilmore it was actually an Ilmore engine that Mercedes took and slightly improved <laughs> oh, okay. A little old Ilmore. And they're still going as well, by the way, Ilmore. Still in existence. Uh, still working with the Pacific team. <laughs> uh, uh, don't. <laughs> oh, we all have fond memories of the uh, the Pacific oh. Ilmore. Well, but... I mean, I did did attempt to do a career mode with that, but uh, that car was shocking. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I watched a few of your, uh, your YouTube streams on it. Yes, yes, yeah. yeah. Um, well, I mean, Ilmore, uh, just putting it out there, they actually had a brief 
this is really bizarre because I did not expect this at all. I know this is going off on a tangent, but they briefly entered um, the 2007 MotoGP season. Really? With, with their own motorbike, yes. And they actually competed in 2006 as well. Oh. Uh, yeah. Um, so they had Gary McCoy as one of their, as their rider. Okay. Um, apparently he's won a couple of races. I don't really know much about MotoGP. Sorry, motorbike fans. Um, but uh, he scored points on it in the 2006 Portuguese Grand Prix and 2006 Valencia uh, Grand Prix. Hmm. Um, but, which, although he scored points, I'm just going to say he did finish last on both occasions um, <laughs> okay. the Portuguese Grand Prix he was four laps down on the race winner and the Valencia Grand Prix he was seven laps down on the race winner <laughs> <laughs> but he was in the running and that's what counts he was in the running and then the team went bankrupt just on the eve of the 2007 season so yeah brilliant but yeah so there you go. The first Mercedes engine in a McLaren was actually a rebadged Ilmore. Well, <laughs> you see, ladies and gentlemen, every day is a school day. Yeah, there you go. There you go. I mean, let's let's bring it back forwards to the modern day then. So obviously we've just had, well, we've actually had a, a pretty interesting start to the season. The midfield hmm. is has is, is actually been pretty close this season. Yeah, it has. The mid the midfield yeah. feels much more competitive than than I've seen it for a while. And I, I wouldn't say, well, no, I was going to say I wouldn't say there's one team that's really straggling, but of course it has. <laughs> they're, they're, they're nowhere. But the you're, Williams you're... is more competitive. Yeah, the Williams. I, I don't know what it is that is, is with Williams at the moment, but they seem to have a much clearer direction they they seem to know what they're doing at the moment which is quite a nice refreshing sort of thing because uh, they, they've languished at the back for years and that's I don't, I don't know about you mate but it just doesn't sit right with me seeing a williams on the back row it just well, i think it, know, it doesn't I, doesn't sit right with me not having someone with the surname williams leading the team but yes. equally i have to concede that i think they are where they are at the moment because of the financial investment from the people that bought yeah. the team so yeah there's only so far i can yeah. take that argument yeah Dor Doralton capital um never heard of them before they actually brought the team so mm. uh, you know but I, I can't fault them for keeping the team alive they've kept the name and they've kept people in jobs and it wasn't looking quite so rosy when you rewind what 18 months ago two years no. you just where you know you just at, at, at that point I was thinking do you know what they're going to go out of business if they don't score points this season that they're gone and then all of a sudden, Claire's decided to sell the team, which I'm not sure what Sir Frank would have truly thought about that in his heart. Mm. Um, it always makes me wonder. Because, I mean, I don't know if you... Did you watch the Williams docu-movie, docu whatever you want to call it? it oh, yeah. Movie, but, thing. but I didn't realise that there was such a relationship breakdown between Claire and her brother. Uh, I didn't realise that... They had had a massive falling out over who should have been leading the team because he thought it should have been him. Mm. And obviously, Sir Frank chose his daughter, 
Um, and obviously her brother was then left to run the heritage side of things, which obviously the legend that is carrying Chandop drives. Um, <laughs> uh, I'm not sure I would have. Uh, no, no, no disrespect to Karun because uh, I'm sure. Yeah, he, he seems like a really nice guy, but I wouldn't. I wouldn't have entrusted some of our finest collection of historic cars in his hands. <laughs> but he hasn't crashed them yet. So. Oh, oh well. You see, you said the word "yet" there. It's like you were expecting yeah. it to happen. Oh, uh, you know, you know, he's still driving them now. I mean, it's it's good that they kept the cars alive. But like you say, it's, they're other people's cars now. They're not. Yeah. They're not. They're not owned by Williams. And that it, it, that's it's sad. Weird. It's a weird and sad way to go because you think. If the people that own those cars now have a falling out with the owners of the team, mm. they could legitimately just go, right, well, I'm taking my car then, and that's it. And then it will be gone for the public eye. Well, I'd hope there's some really robust legislation and, and legal yeah. writs in the background that would stop them doing that. But equally, they could lose any of the goodwill um, that might grant extensions to those leases or what have you. So, yeah, there's there's a long-term risk for the future. But that's the writing's been on the wall there for a while. It was back when Massa and Stroll were driving for the car. They were... They had a real struggle getting a sponsor. Then they were sponsored by Martini and Shaw. And then after Massa retired, they lost one of the... I think there was Martini pulled out and said they weren't going to sponsor anymore. And uh, then Rexona. Rexona was the other sponsor. They also went, didn't they? Yeah, well, Rexona was um, was Shaw. I think we call oh, it right, Shaw okay. deodorant in this country, but it's Rexona yes. um, elsewhere. But yeah, it was it was a really worrying time for for Williams, and I I hope that they really have turned a corner and that things are going to get better for them. But my other fear with that, and again, I know I've said it a few times, they're supposed to be the best drivers in the world, and I accept that. George Russell is a very good, very capable, very competent driver that deserves an opportunity in a race winning car. Yes, I do not rate. Nicholas Latifi particularly highly. Yeah, no, uh, Latifi. I mean, if 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 we're going to be brutally honest, he's there for one reason, um, <laughs> you know, and that is the big bucks that he brings with him from Canada. And mm-hmm. uh, yeah, uh, don't get me wrong, he's been a world better. Than a certain Nikita Mazaspin. Um, <laughs> Get used to him, folks. He ain't going anywhere anytime soon because his dad's got loads of money. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised if he ends up buying the goddamn team. But, I think uh, it's on the cards. I think it'll happen. I think it will happen. Uh, as much as I don't want it to happen, I think it will. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, both of those guys, Mazapin, Latifi, uh, should they legitimately be on the grid? I would say no, because when you look at the drivers that, well, I mean, Nick DeVries, for one, yeah. Formula he's a Formula 2 champion, so he can no longer, by the rule set, he's not allowed to race in Formula 2 anymore, so that is it. He's now having to make his way, I think he's in Formula E now, Formula E. Uh, yeah, it might be. It's, it's a shame, because I think... You know, these guys that win Formula 2, that should be the sign that in equal machinery, they're the best of the best coming up. Yeah. And they they, they should be given the chance to progress to Formula 1. But instead, we've got two people filling two legitimate seats on the Formula 1 grid hmm. because of money. Yeah. And 
Yeah, I couldn't agree more, mate. And actually, you know, there's a whole host of names you could pick from that grid. Callum Eilot, oh. I think, is a is a great up-and-coming yes. driver. And I believe, I, I think the problem with Callum Eilot is he's on the Ferrari Driver Academy. Yeah. And this is the other thing, is that does limit you somewhat into where you can go. So if you're a Ferrari Academy driver, you go into Haas or Alpha, because they're not going to put you straight in the Rari. Um, but they're equally there'd be lots of discussions if there was a desire for you to go to, say, Renault. I'm not saying it's, it wouldn't happen, because we've seen it in the past. Um, Ocon was a Mercedes driver when he went to Renault, was he not? Uh, yeah, he was. He was, um, initially. And then they severed their ties with each other. Yeah, I suspect there's been lots of backroom meetings about that, and I also suspect a lot of money is shared hands to buy him out of the contract. Equally... Not sure I see why. I'm also not a fan of Esteban Ocon. I've never seen I've never seen any amazing racecraft from him that I don't think I see from anybody else. I, I wouldn't be paying big bucks for him, but that's just me. Yeah, he's got a contract renewal now, of course. Um, yeah, you've just been given a three-year extension, for fuck's sake. <laughs> yeah. Um, interesting. Very interesting. Yeah. Um, Rather their well, money I than mean, mine. Well, I mean... Ultimately, is yes, their money. Uh, I mean, he's he's consistent, but he's not spectacular. He's 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 not been spectacular in well, I can't think of any race really. Um, there isn't one defining race that stands out to me as oh my god, this guy's gonna be a former like a, 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 a next world champion. That hasn't happened hmm. with Ocon. He's uh. Yeah, I, I think he's going to be a typical kind of, you know, he'll pick you up, pick you up some points, but you know, is he much more than just a, you know, a consistent midfield point scorer? Mm. Yeah, and well, you know, for anyone out there who remembers the the film Rush, there was that famous statement when they were going to hire James Hunt for the for the McLaren, and they were going to pick between James Hunt and and Jackie X, and they said, listen. Yeah, you'll get points with Jackie, but will he go for that win? On on that day when he's at his best, you're going to want James Hunt in your car. It's the same sort of thing with Esteban Ocon. He's an okay driver. He does okay. He, he'll get you a few points. I don't see him as a driver that's going to win a, a season. He's not going to win a driver's title anywhere. Just don't see it happening. His card was very much marked for me, and I'm going to put this out there and say I'm not really a huge Verstappen fan I get that he's exciting and you know he does some some interesting things and he's bringing a fresh new look but I struggle to love the guy in the same way I have for previous drivers like Senna or, or Mansell but it all goes back to that Interlagos incident where Eka Ocon was unlapping himself from Verstappen and put his car in a fucking stupid position. I mean, the whole manoeuvre was ridiculous. Yeah. Max has to accept some of the blame in it, don't get me wrong, but it was 90% Ocon being a twat. And you can't have that when you're unlapping yourself from the race leader. I don't know what he was thinking. No. Uh, I think that's always going to linger with him. Uh, oh, yeah. you know, especially for Verstappen fans, they're not going to forget that. That's, that's always going to be in the very forefront of their minds. Um, yeah, so I mean, yeah, he'll pick you up points, but is he going to win you championships? No, is is the answer to that one. Yeah, I, um, I would agree. Yeah. Um, 
I mean, I will say Verstappen seems to have matured over mm-hmm. recent years. He seems to like. He seems to really sort of becoming. Uh, know, for want of a better word, a man. He seems to be becoming a man because let's not forget he made his F1 debut at age seventeen. Yeah. Like it feels like he's been around for a lifetime already. Yet he's he's not even in the prime of his career yet. <laughs> Yeah. And that is the scary thing to think about, that he's not in the prime of his career yet. He's potentially got the best years ahead of him. He does. Um, and, and this is something I find fascinating about modern F1 as well, because I don't know about you, Steve, but I, I can be really open and honest and say, do you know what I was like at 17? I can tell you, I was a complete dickhead. And I was probably a complete dickhead until I was about 21, 22. And then I was still a dickhead. I was just a bit less of a dickhead. So... To think about being given that kind of a responsibility at 17 years old, I I challenge that you can find the most mature 17-year-old in the world ever. They're still not ready for that responsibility. It's too much. Yeah, agreed, agreed. I mean, he handled it bloody well, though, um, for a 17-year-old. He did, and there was a lot of uh, a lot of pomp and ceremony around him, and a lot of uh, yeah. a lot of press and what have you. And he did make some stupid mistakes. He did do some of stupid course. stuff. He got a bit hot headed. He um, yep. he started to build a reputation. It was almost going a bit Maldonado ish, you know. It was <laughs> it was you know, if he shows you a wheel, get out of his way because he's going to crash into yeah. you. But he he turned it around, and a lot of that, I suspect, some credit is due to his dad, Yoss, um, who's obviously yeah, yeah. been on this merry-go-round before. Um, but yeah, he did do incredibly well. But I'd argue that Lando Norris, as yes. as a really young driver coming through, has shown nothing but professionalism and and just genuine niceness as he comes through Charles de Klerk has been similar he's come through as a young lad who's genuinely come yep. across as a lovely guy um, Albon to some degree is is cut from the same cloth as is George Russell they've all come across as really nice guys yeah yeah I mean, you see this is the thing like, and, yeah it's, it's, it's the next generation coming through and uh, like you say Lando very actually quite humble i don't know if you saw free practice today or any parts of it but um lando uh he, he spun his car around basically coming out of turn one okay and uh the, the team jumped on the radio and uh his engineer is going eh, uh, what, what what damage have you got what damage you got and he jumps on the radio going my talent <laughs> <laughs> you see i i love that yeah and that just for me epitomised Lando in one. Like, you know, he's not afraid to take the piss out of himself, and you know, and, that, yeah. and it, it was good. It was like that was quite the response. And uh, yeah, uh, I'm sure I'm sure the McLaren pit wall had a few laughs to that. I bet but, they did. Uh, well, so someone yeah. shared a video with me in my Discord last week of Lando Norris, and he was um, he was on the phone to his mum. Oh, when the team ripped him, going, Mummy, Mummy. Yeah. But actually, if you listen to the conversation, I'm, I'm sure he's saying something like, Yeah, yeah, no, I know. You were right, Mum. And I should I should yeah. have believed you. You were right. I know that. But equally, you know, again, thinking about how much of a dickhead I was at 17, I wouldn't have wanted to be seen near dead with my mum when I was 17 years old because that wasn't cool. Yeah. He's, he's not that kind of guy. He's like, No, this is my mum. I don't give a shit whether it makes me cool or not. I'm going to talk to my mum. Yeah, 
I was a lot older when I came to that conclusion. It took me a long time to get that level of maturity. <laughs> yeah, well, fair play to lad. I mean, uh, yeah, I, I, I kind of feel I don't, I don't know about you, but obviously with with Lando, I, I kind of feel that the like the whole because he had a bit of a bromance with Carlos and still does. Yeah, let's be honest, those two together are a, a magical pairing. But I kind of feel they pressed the kind of meme team with him and Danny Rick a bit too early, where it just kind of felt a bit too forced. And, yeah. Uh, oh, I mean, let's talk about Danny Rick. What do you make of his season so far? I'm really disappointed for him. I really am. Because Danny Rick is a driver that actually I do have a lot of love for. I think he's got a lot of talent. Equally, again, he comes across as a thoroughly nice guy, really genuine. You know, think back to his railroad track, um, braces, smiles back in the day. Yeah, he's a good egg. And talent-wise, he went up against Seb, who at the time was, was lauded as the best driver on the grid, multiple world champion and the best car on the grid. And Danny Rick gave Seb a bloody nose until he left the team. Yeah. I thought he's made some really bold career choices and I can see why he made them you know leaving Red Bull to go to Renault was a bold move but manufacture a team with plenty of development and promises made sense um finding himself at McLaren now when McLaren are bringing themselves out of the doldrums was also brave because we've seen people like Alonso go there and not do well after being on the same promises and he's really struggling and he's being massively outperformed by Lando now yeah I think, to my mind, this can only be down to one thing, and this is that there is something in that car which doesn't suit his way of driving. I could, That's all I can think it is. Yeah. I, I would agree, um, because, I mean, the, the start of the last Grand Prix, so the Styrian Grand Prix that they want to call it, it's basically Australian, Austrian Grand Prix 1, mm -hmm. um, but obviously, you know, for championship reasons. Um off the start, he had a traditional like there was there was signs of Danny Rick in there, mm. and you can see that he underneath that service he's he's itching to basically be up there with Lando. He's you know, and he should be. Mm. Um, and he was pulling he pulled off some fantastic moves on that first lap. To I think he went from what did he go from from thirteenth on the grid up to eighth on the grid in lap and lap one like he went he went up like five places on the opening lap really strong start for him yeah but then he um, fell backwards rapidly he, afterwards he, he he did um they had a they had some car issue or something with the electronic control unit okay uh, it, it was in the wrong setting and they couldn't get it to change um and it took the software engineers to basically do something remotely to get it to reset basically but by then the damage was done and he's he's back to being in that queue of traffic, but we haven't seen because don't get me wrong, like Danny Rick, he was always the last of the late breakers. Mm. Uh, we we've not really seen th those kind of moves. Um, I mean, it's, the Renault was a dog of a car for a while, mm -hmm. um, and like you say that. There's got to be something with the McLaren that isn't quite clicking for him. I mean, he's had some s s solid results. Like, he's been P6 three times so far this season. But on each one of those occasions, he's been behind Lando, who's just extracted more from the car. Yeah, um, and I mean, I'm just looking at the um, the stats from, from that last race. So, if I go back to qualifying, 
Danny Rick was out in Quali 2, so he only qualified in the first two sessions. His time in Quali 1 was a 105.1, whereas yes. Lando put in a 104.5, six tenths quicker. Yeah. The next yeah. one, Danny Rick picked up the pace a bit and managed a 104.8, but Lando was doing a 104.9. There was still six tenths between them. And in Formula 1, six tenths is an absolute age. Um, two, just clarify. <laughs> yes, sorry. You said, you said 104.9. No, but yeah, it's, it, it, in terms of Formula 1, that deficit to your teammate, it, it, I mean... Let's rewind. Let's go back a year. When we were having those deficits between Albon and Verstappen, that only yeah. went one way. You yeah. know, that... Uh, it I, pains me. I don't think we'll see... You know, McLaren don't have form in the same way that Red Bull do for, for chopping and changing a driver mid-season. And frankly, there's a very different conversation to be had about trying to chop and change a driver with the... Oh, yeah the calibre and, and background and history that Danny Rick has over someone like an Alex Albon. Um, yes. He ain't going anywhere. He'll be there throughout the season. But he's got to do something to pick up his results. He's not going to get a move. Because he was talked about as a Ferrari driver in the future. He's oh, not going mean, to get a move to Ferrari based on his current results. No. Yeah, and yeah... Uh... I mean, that was rumoured to be around the time when he was leaving Red Bull. Or was he going to go to Ferrari? You know, there, mm -hmm. there was a lot of talk about it. I mean, let's not forget, though, there was talk at one point of bloody Grosjean going to Ferrari when he moved to Haas. <laughs> so, you know, we shouldn't take that as uh, as kind of the bar. Um, but, no. yeah. I don't know. I mean, to be fair, though, like when they started touting Grosjean for Ferrari, Grosjean was kind of in the form of his life. And yeah. he was doing very well. He, he had that psychologist or something, but yeah. Well, I mean, we're talking about the time yeah. when he was partnering Kimi Räikkönen and Lotus when they were having a really good turn of form, which is what got Kimi his drive back at Ferrari. It did, it did, and yeah, like those two were, they were good for Lotus. Well, Gini Capital, really. <laughs> yeah, not Lotus um, proper as we know it. No, no. Um. Another driver I want to talk about, Sergio Perez. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Good old Checo. Um, do you know what? Red Bull must be feeling, I would say, much happier this season knowing they've actually got a number two that can actually put in some decent results. Mm. Um, it's been a while. It's been a while since Red Bull have had essentially two cars. It's been a while. Um yeah, a worrying amount of time. And I was starting to yeah. wonder, again, going back to that conversation we had earlier about the, are the cars set up right for the drivers? Is Danny Rick feeling that car? I was starting to wonder if Max had a very specific way that he liked the cars set up on a knife edge or something that other drivers just couldn't adapt to. Because Pierre Gasly, we've seen him come up with some absolutely outstanding results in that um i still want to call it a toro rosso alpha tauri yes. um but he couldn't come anywhere close to that in the red bull in the you know the parent car no, and no. albon i i had really high hopes for albon last season especially after yeah. the start the first austrian austrian grand prix where he was running really well he looked like he was going to get lewis and then he uh, he bit off a little bit more than he could chew and lewis punished him for it and then that was it. He was nowhere for the rest of the season. So seeing Sergio bring that car into a decent position, 
pleases me. Um, but I'm equally not surprised. I think Sergio is a really good, really talented driver. And I think his career took a bit of a sideways turn because he got the big money move to a, a, um, a championship winning car too early because he got that move to McLaren. Yeah, and he did okay, but not up to the standards that they expected. And he was outshone by Lewis Hamilton, um, who was in the form of his life at that time driving the McLaren. So that was never going to be a great turn of events. Hang on, am I going? No, no, no. Was it Lewis or was it Jensen he drove with? Jensen. It was yeah, yeah, because it was 2010, wasn't it? It was when Lewis left. Sergio came in. Well, Lewis was still there in 2010. Was he? Yeah, Lewis. Uh, that was twenty thirteen. Because Lewis, Lewis were moved to Mercedes in twenty thirteen or twenty twelve. So, so the question would be: Is who did Perez partner at McLaren? Uh, Jensen Button. It was yeah. Jensen Button. JB, yeah, JB. So well, you can't have had Lewis and Jensen and Sergio all in the same car. So Lewis must have gone by then. He must have gone to Mercedes. Lewis went to Mercedes 2013. So, yeah, Sergio's season at, M at McLaren was 2013. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. So he came in to replace Lewis and partner he Jensen. Did. So it was an incredibly tough act to follow, to follow Lewis oh, Hamilton. Yeah. But equally, Jensen was a great driver. Um, well, you know, mm. that, that's, I don't want to say it like that. He's not dead. He is a great driver. Yeah. Um. So it it was just, it was too much too soon for him. And of course, he ended up then back at what was Forced India at the time that's been through its various things. And he's been there basically throughout. And he's always put in some really solid results. I mean, Christ, he won a race last year in the in the racing point. Yeah, he did. He did. He seized, seized his moment. And I'll I tell you what, I, I mean, I was ecstatic for the man. I, mm. I was absolutely like, delighted that, you know, that he was... Yeah, that he was right up there. Um, he's kind of always... I kind of felt like he's always threatened to pull out a result like that. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, he he, do, he goes and does it. I mean, he, let's not forget, I mean, last season, he finished fourth overall with a Drivers' Championship. Uh, and that's... that's you know, bearing in mind, you've got Mercedes up there and Red Bull. He's then beat off the Ferraris, which mm. they had a shit season. You know, let's yeah, let's not forget they had a crap season. That but true. that midfield was incredibly close, and he still managed to drag out enough of a result to haul himself ahead of the rest of the field. It's true, but I think he's gonna be he's gonna be a, a David Coulthard. He's gonna always be the bridesmaid. He's never gonna be the bride. I see yeah. him being a really solid number two. I see him perhaps even at some point in the not too distant future being runner up in the drivers' championship. I don't think he's ever gonna take a title home of his own. No. I don't think he will, but... I, hey, that's what Red Bull wanted, though. Yeah, that is what Red Bull wanted, and do you know what? Sergio, I, I know he's, at one point everyone was touting him as a future world champion based on mm. a few drives, but uh, I, I think he can be very happy with where he's at. Um, you know, I mean, there was times when it looked like he might not even be on, on the bloody grid. Let's, yeah. let's be real. Like, I mean, Force India, when they had all of that fraud stuff going on with VJ Malia and that, that 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 team could have gone that team you know could have folded but uh, he, it was it was him that instigated the legal court case um so he, he basically forced VJ Malia's hand and forced them into receivership 
so mm-hmm. as the team could be sold. And in essence, he's a bit of a hero, really, because he's ended up saving all those people's jobs. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Really, like, I see why the team, like the employees of the team, hold him in such high regard because he's essentially saved their livelihoods. Mm. Uh, uh, yeah, I think he can be just be proud of that. He's a good guy. He is. He is a good guy. I mean, he wasn't that long. He flew back to Mexico because there was. I can't even remember what it was, but there was a national emergency in Mexico some point last year. Might have been COVID related. No, no. His family farm got attacked. Can you? Do you remember that? It was last oh, year. Baby. Yeah, his family farm was attacked, and there was there was talk of people being in there with shotguns, and one of his family members was shot or injured or something, and he flew back home. It was all really bizarre. Yeah, I'd forgotten about that. Mm. But anyway, I'm not going to dive into that. That's going to be too much of a depressing topic. I do have a game I want to play with you, though. Okay. It's called Who is a Future World Champion on this current grid? Okay. So you, you know the grid as well as I do. You could name all the drivers in all the cars. I'm only thinking about the current F1 paddock. I'm not talking about reserve drivers. I'm not talking about the F2 or anything coming up. Just current number one and number two drivers. Who has the potential or will be a future world champion? Well, I mean, I think the natural choice right now, obviously Max Verstappen. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I, I, I would. I think we would struggle to find anyone who would disagree with that. Yeah, um, as I think much so. as there's haters out there, yeah, Verstappen, most definitely. Um, yeah. Um, I mean, I I think because people were a bit concerned whether or not his star was kind of fading, but um, I think this season's proved it's not, and it's only growing. I'd say Lando Norris is in with a shout. Yeah, I um, I think so as well. I think give him the right machinery with the right team around him and he will bring home the goods. Um, I mean, he's already pulled out some stunning results for McLaren with a couple of podiums. Yeah. Um, I, you see, <laughs> it's weird to think, isn't it? At one point we're all going, oh, do you know what? When he was in the Williams, oh, Valtteri Bottas, oh my God, he's going to be amazing. The next flying <laughs> Finn. He's firmly gone. I, I'm saying now he's he's past his prime. He will be a good team leader for a midfield team. Yeah. Um, but he won't be more than that. Um, I agree. You see, part of me, uh, right, so part of me still wants to say Danny Rick, but do you know what? I, I just don't see it now. I, I don't, I don't know if your opinion's different on that, but. I think I think his chance has come and gone. I mean, it's 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 a really difficult one because you know form is temporary, class is permanent. Yeah. It um, is. It is. I mean, if you go on class every day of the week, mm. every day of the week. No, absolutely. I think it will come down to for Danny Rick. It will come down to how we adapt to the twenty twenty two cars and the rule changes that come in. That that will make or break him because we've seen this with drivers in the past. Great yep. drivers have been through big rule changes and have not come out the other side very well. No, they've not. No, no. Um, I'm going to throw another name in the hat. Go on then. Charles Leclerc. Yeah. So that, it was actually Charles Leclerc was one of the ones that made me want to ask you this question because I I I equally see it. I'm yeah. not sure 
if it will happen at Ferrari, because I don't... Ferrari have sort of lost their way a little bit over the past few years, so I'm not... Do you know, they, they, the last few years, I would say that they've been in complete disarray since... Uh, it pains me to say it, but since Fernando Alonso had his title challenge in, what, 2012? Yeah, I, I, I wouldn't they, necessarily disagree with that. They've kind of never felt... Uh, to, to me, it's never felt like they've truly been in control of what they're doing or where they're going. It, it, they seem to chop and change all the time with the management structure. Yeah. Um, and it, I don't think they... Bearing in mind, F1 is very much... You, you have to work over a good period of time as a team to grind out a good design, a good philosophy, and, and an ethos, hmm. so to speak. I don't think they're allowing their management teams enough time to instill that. You mate, and, you're spot on, absolutely spot on. And and even now, Binotto, like I love the guy. He is fantastic. He's a great leader. But then there's been other management changes below him in different areas of the team. And I just kind of still think chopping and changing in a knee-jerk reaction isn't just going to solve your problems. That's not... You know, you, you, you've got to give things time. As painful as it is, you've got to give things time. And yeah. it's not working. It's not working for them. And I, I, like you say, I think... I don't think Charles Leclerc is going to win title at Ferrari. Um, yeah... At, I, I just I don't think Ferrari have got it in them, and it's weird to say that about Ferrari, the, the you know the most legendary team on the grid. Uh, I, I don't think they've got it. I just they've that they, they've lost that. I, I I don't know what it was, but Montezemolo, Luca de Montezemolo, who <laughs> took over, obviously, it, he had that kind of. I don't want to say arrogance, but. He was a man who knew what he wanted and would do anything to get it. Kind of like Bernie Eccleston. Yeah. They are gentlemen who know what they want and they will place a path to get to where they want to be. And I don't think we've really seen that since he's gone. No, I think you're right. And, you know, you're you're absolutely spot on with what you say about that changing management and changing, changing leadership. You know, I've seen this in my own work career when I when I've moved posts into leadership positions or new leaders have come in in, in my teams it takes a while to warm up to them to get used to them to understand what they're about what their values are how to work with them that could take six months and actually that's still only just to get the initial understanding so that continued yeah. developed relationship takes years to form into the type of partnerships that we see like Nicky Lauda and uh, Toto at, um, at Mercedes leading Lewis yep. and Nico and Jean Tot and Michael Schumacher with, um, oh God, who's the big guy? Ferrari. That, uh, yeah, but it was Ferrari, but who else was there? It was Mike, Jean Todd yeah, and... Yeah, yeah, Ross Braun Ross as well. Braun. Ross Braun, exactly yeah. who I was thinking of. And even to some degree, Flavio Briatore uh, at Renault in, yeah. in their key years. You know, those kind of real leadership characters. It takes a while to cement. They don't come in on a Monday and by Friday all your problems are fixed. You do have to persevere. That might mean a year of pain. But yeah. you go through that year of pain to get to the other side. It was always... So again, being a Lewis fan, when... 
he left McLaren to go to Mercedes, it was always a bold move. And that Mercedes was a midfield car at best, perhaps a slightly competitive midfield car, but a midfield car at best. Everyone thought it was a really odd move. And I had made a really firm assumption that he had done that on the basis of the strength of their hybrid era projections and they clearly were abandoning the v8 and and v10 era cars and saying listen we're not going to put a penny into this it'll be as competitive as as it is get on board um because next year we'll have a car that'll be a world beater and fact me they were right (laughs) they were absolutely right by quite some margin as well exactly Um, yeah it's one of those i mean i mean you could say though that by and large like a lot of that work up to 2012 put in to cement that progression that I know what you're gonna say. That, it, it came from that traditional partnership of let's not forget one of them the, you know the most dominant periods that schumacher braun partnership yeah. again yeah i and, knew you were gonna say it <laughs> uh, and it really did lay a foundation and you know the mercedes employees say them say themselves like bringing in a former world champion i mean they've said it about sebastian vettel this year at aston martin yeah um bringing in that you know world champion into the team it changes how they go about things mm. um they've got very particular ways that they want to do things and by and large it always works out for the best mm. um aston martin are improving uh, you know they're getting there but this season's a write-off frankly yeah. um you know and i think most of the teams are feeling that way um uh, yeah it's it's one I say. I mean, I, I'm excited to see what we get next year, um, and who's going to adapt the best. I, I I will say that I think someone who will actually do quite well under the new regulations with the new aero, being sort of a more a classic feel, uh, Fernando Alonso. Because um, he, okay. he, you know, I, I'm basing this on he made his F1 debut back when aero was a bit simpler. You know, he came in with what, Minardi, two thousand and one, shit car. You know, don't get me wrong, <laughs> but, but he dragged some results out of that Minardi, and it's some great qualifying results as well. Um, I think Tarso Marquez, God rest his soul, <laughs> poor guy. He never, he never stood a chance. No, but um, yeah, uh, Alonso, I think will do very well next year because um, it's almost a throwback to that era, that kind of thing. I would love Kimmy to stay on another year, but do you know what? I I I I think this might be Kimmy's last year. Oh, interesting. So I I don't necessarily. Yeah, I I think it will be. Um, I I think he's uh, he's proven this year that he's still got a lot to offer. I mean, he was racing with uh, with Sebastian for that last points place. Um. Uh, at, at Austria and he, there's a video been doing the rounds on YouTube for some time about his first lap at Portimao, the Portuguese track oh. last year where he just I mean... decimated about seven <laughs> or eight drivers in one lap that yeah. that start is the best start I've ever seen that, mm. was, that was an incredible opening lap he's still got um, it I mean, oh, I will say this as well the Alfa Romeo is a poor car at yeah, this moment in time it's it a poor car, but if it's on the soft compound of tyres at the beginning of a race, it does get the heat into the tyres quicker than some of the other cars. Obviously, the knock-on effect of that is they go off a lot quicker. <laughs> um, 
But, like, for the start of the races, the Alfa Romeo always seems to have a bit more bite than the cars around it. Uh, I don't know what they do. I don't, I don't know whether it's the tyre blankets or the preparation, or if it is just the way the car is on the tyres. Um, but... I, what do you make of Giovinazzi? <laughs> that, no. I, I'm just, I'm just going to sidetrack and sidestep to Kimi's teammate. Because I, I was reading an article... Um, and I will try and get this article up. So, and this comes from uh, the Alfa Romeo employees. And they're saying that Antonio Giovinazzi has been making waves. Oh, yes. Uh, very interesting. It's a very good read. And um, it was actually uh, broadcast. Uh, this is from the 27th of May this year. Mm-hmm. Um, this is on the official Formula One website. There's an actual like whole thing, um, and that, it was entitled. And this is what caught my eye: how Antonio Giovinazzi is quietly making waves at Alfa Romeo. And I was kind of sitting there thinking, but I haven't seen anything fantastic from him. Like, it's, I, I, I don't know about you, but I kind of feel, I, I. <laughs> is he is he a driver that should be on the F1 grid? Is is kind of what I'm getting at. When you've got other Ferrari Academy drivers, such as Callum Callum Ilott, Ilott. yeah, Rob, Robert Schwartzman, yeah, who, you know, these are exciting talents. They are exciting drivers. It, should he be on the F1 grid? He bear in mind, Giovinazzi is now 27 years old. Yeah, he's he's not a young he's not a young gun. He's, he, you know, anyone else, that's kind of mid-career. That's, you know, that's, well, some people it's end of career, but, you know. Um, <laughs> so it's, this is a really one. interesting argument. So had you have asked me this question a year ago, I would have said that there was there was enough being shown from Giovinazzi to show that there's some good raw material for a, for a handy driver in the future. Not necessarily a Formula One world champion, um, and not necessarily a runner-up, but the sort of guy that could nick in and grab a podium here and there and, and have a decent career. I'm... Has he moved on from that, though? Has no. he shown... He, he's just plateaued, in my opinion. I Yeah, so I'm not seeing that development that I would be hoping from him. But I have to measure that slightly because I don't think you're going to be able to see much of that development in what is a very satisfactory car the challenge of course will always be that he's being outperformed fairly regularly by Kimi Raikkonen a man getting on for twice his age but equally a former world champion let's not forget you know he's he's no slouch is our Kimi yeah if you look at I mean just for comparison so you look at the results between Kimi and Giovinazzi yeah this, this just taking this season so just this part of the season that we've reached they've been a lot closer together this season a lot closer um mm. i mean bahrain kimi 11th giovinazzi 12th uh imola kimi 13th giovinazzi 14th uh, i'm only going to compare the ones where they've actually finished a race um, <laughs> for the best por- por- portugal kimi retired unfortunately yeah uh, monaco kimi 12th giovinazzi did struggle there 15th mm. um was that monaco no that was spain sorry monaco kimi 11th giovinazzi 10th and then it was reversed for Baku, where Kimi picks up a point. And then Giovinazzi had the legs on him at France as well. Uh, Giovinazzi finished 15th, Kimi 17th. I mean, that just shows how poor the car is. Hmm. You know, uh, 
But, you know, I suppose yeah, then Kimmy's bounced back last race with, you know, like say, just on the fringes of points. Mm-hmm. With P- P11 and Giovinazzi was kind of nowhere, P15. They're closer than they have been. but it's... They are. But you can see that consistency much more from Kimmy. You know, 10th, yes. 11th. Yes. Oh, I've had a bad race. I'm down in 12th. Whereas Giovinazzi's going 17th, 15th. 11th 10th so it's, yeah. it's a bit of a different one i think the argument for replacing giovanazzi comes back to what we were saying earlier about those young drivers and whether they're ready for mentally in a maturity standpoint to take that drive because for raw talent and what i've seen and the opportunity i'd have calamilo in that car over giovanazzi any day of the week yeah. But is Callum Eilat mentally ready or is he going to get into a car like that, be, you know, like a a kid in a sweet shop and and end up binning it for the next four races and costing the team millions of pounds in rebuilding the car? And that's what they don't want. Whereas the only big crash I ever remember Gio having was that one at Spa last year. Well, mm, that's not strictly true, though. Okay. So uh, if you take... So Giovinazzi actually made his debut for Salva. He deputised for a couple of races at Salva, and he trashed the car straight away at Shanghai. Um, that's where he made his debut. Well, that um, sort of reinforces the don't get a young kid in your car straight away when you could have an it, old hand. <laughs> it, it does. It does. So... In fact, it's, it's, I'm going to... This is an interesting one. I'm going to sidebar us slightly here, because I remember Giovinazzi in the Salva... Wasn't he in the Sauber because Pascal Verline couldn't drive for some reason? And the reason I want to pick that up is I want to ask, where the fuck is Pascal Verline? Because I thought he showed a huge amount of promise and then he, he lost his drive and disappeared. Yeah, so it's interesting you mention this because obviously this goes back to, God, this, this was like Mano were in existence. Um... Yeah, Pascal Verlon's now formed the E. Um, he's... Uh, yeah, he's not very consistent. He's all over the place. One minute he's on pole, the next he's in 15th. It, he's uh, he's kind of slipped into a bit of obscurity. I, I, I completely agree. And I believe it was... I'm just going back to the 2017 season. Yeah, so Pascal Verlon withdrew um, at the beginning for the opening two races. He withdrew um from running i'm not entirely sure why was that a license issue did he have a problem with his license let's have a look uh just having a look at his history oh no no he was forced to miss the first test in barcelona due to an injury he sustained when competing in the race of champions in rock so geo sat in for him and then he was fit to take part in the australian but withdrew after participating in the first two practice sessions with Gio replacing him for the rest of the weekend. Mm. And then he stayed on for another race weekend, which is a bit peculiar. Yeah. Peculiar, okay. very peculiar. But, yeah, Pascal Verline. Now, you see, I rated Pascal. Um, yeah. I, I rated him very highly, especially when he was dragging out results in the manner. Mm. Bearing in mind that car was... <laughs> Dog shit. Uh, uh, it was dog. Yeah, it was dog shit. I mean, 
he drove the Manor, what, 2016? Well, that was the one that they titled Dream Machine, wasn't it? The dr- the Dream Machine. That's what... <laughs> Might yeah. be. And he, he scored that stunning point at Austria where he was legitimately on the pace in mm-hmm. a shit car. Yeah. Um, he had a massive falling out with... Because he was Mercedes-backed. He was part of the Mercedes-backed you know, backed program. Mm-hmm. He had a monumental falling out with Mercedes um, after his season with Sauber. Um, so he basically, basically Mercedes didn't get him another, they basically didn't pay for him to have another drive in Formula One because there wasn't really a legitimate seat that they could put him into. Because um, obviously Sauber had just transitioned hands into someone else, yeah, whoever it is that oversees it. Um obviously Alfa Romeo um, uh, so he 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 didn't stay on because technically Alfa Romeo is linked to Ferrari so yeah, Mercedes are not going to pay for him to drive in pretty much at the time their arch rival's car yeah um, he had a bit of a falling out with them although Mercedes did send him back to DTM yes uh, in, in, the, in the factory car and it didn't go as well as his 2015 season where he was the title winner. Um, he finished eighth in DTM in 2018. And that they had a massive fall in that because basically he only wanted to sit out of F1 for a year and then he wanted to go. He wanted, he wanted guarantees that he was going to be back on the grid for 2019. Ultimately, that didn't happen. Um, <laughs> he, he got a bit... In fairness to him, he got very pig-headed. He almost... He'd done a bit of a Christian Albers. Kind of felt he was a bit more important than he should have been. And Mercedes t- severed ties. They were basically like, well, we've not got a seat to put you in. And, you know, you've had a poor season in DTM. We're not going to basically pay for you to go back to Formula One. Because mm. um, there's nowhere for you to go. Uh, and it was a bit of a bitter thing. So they severed ties. And he ended up driving for Mahindra in Formula E. Um, <laughs> so he basically done no running for the entire first half of 28. What was that? No, so he went from DTM straight into Formula E. Uh, he was always in the tail end of the points, but never spectacular. I mean, his, I mean, here's his Formula E results to date. So uh, the first season, 12th overall with 58 points. Second season, 18th overall with just 14 points. He had a falling out with the management at Mahindra and severed ties with Mahindra. Um, so they basically kicked him to the curb. So he's got a bit of form here for his attitude. Okay. Um, and then he's been picked up by, of all people, this stunned me. So Porsche picked him up. Oh, what for the endurance series? No, for Formula E. So ah. he's in the Porsche Formula E team. And he looks set to have his best season yet. That said, he's still only ninth overall in the driver standings. So... Since since his time with the Mercedes program and his dabblings with Formula One, he's kind of been the maker of his own demise, and that's a shame because there's a lot of talent there. It, but he's just hasn't used it in the right way. 
Yeah, so that is a shame. I I had some relatively high hopes for him. I thought he was a was a handy driver, but you know we know firsthand that temperament and mentality is important as actually being a good driver. And I'm gonna I'm gonna say a name here that I think is right in my mind. If it is, you'll immediately react to it and know exactly what I'm talking about. Dan Tickdom. Uh uh-uh, yeah. Um, so where, if, where if, do we begin with him? <laughs> well, if if memory serves, Tictum was a Red Bull program, junior Red Bull program driver. Correct. Yep. And there was an incident in an F two or an F three race that he took offence at, so then crashed his opposing driver off the circuit in a relatively dangerous fashion, as any high-speed motorsport crash is, completely on purpose, and then yes. had to sit out and it was was banned from driving for the next 12 to 18 months or so. Yes, correct. I mean, yeah, that's, who the that, fuck does that? Yeah. Uh, yeah. It was, I think it was his own teammate. I'm sure it was his own teammate he'd done this to. Was it really? Uh, and do you know what? Do you know what? It's someone we spoke about earlier tonight. Ricky Collard. Was it Ricky? <laughs> it was Ricky. Yeah. Jesus. It was Ricky Collard. Um, so here we go. So in 2015, so this is six years ago now. So 2015, Tickton graduated to the MSA Formula with Fortec Motorsport. Uh, for those of you that don't know Fortec Motorsport, they've been around for years in the junior categories in the UK. Really successful team. Um, so he had led the early rounds of the championship. Uh, he'd like taken a, a couple of victories and everything, which was pretty like he was. People were starting to take note. Um, but then his, it was really weird. His season was weird because all of a sudden that pace just evaporated, and he fell behind Lando Norris. And here's a name that I didn't know raced in the UK: Colton Herter. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, Colton Herter, who's now IndyCar. Okay. Um, he basically the second last race of the season got involved in an incident where he purposely overtook several cars whilst under a safety car to purposely crash into rival Ricky Collard. Jesus. Subsequently, he received a two-year ban from motorsport, um, of which one year was suspended. So he's kind of on a, a, a probation after the first year, so to speak. Um, yeah, because of that, he ended up finishing... They still classified him in the standings. Despite the ban, they still classified him in the standings as sixth overall and second in the rookie category. Wow. Okay. Uh, this guy... Uh, this is a guy that... Uh, did you see much of Formula 2 last year? Bits of it. More than I have done in most years, if I'm honest. So, basically, he returns... A year on 2016 mm-hmm. um and he bearing in mind obviously the way when his band started it was kind of end of season so he's returned for essentially a one-off race in the european formula three championship at carlin yeah um and the autumn trophy here in the uk that we did for formula three um we will have to have a discussion about british formula three and its terrible demise um <laughs> But he finished second and placed fourth in that autumn series. Um, it's a it's a weird return to sort of racing. I mean, he even got a he even got a seat in the Macau Grand Prix. So people just willingly welcomed him back. 
there's there what? there has to be a clear financial element in that somewhere because you don't welcome back someone with that kind of a history with open arms in the way that people did. No, no. Uh, what what pisses me off even more is a guy like this is also part of the Williams Driver Academy. Oh, he's uh, Williams program. Driver Academy now, is he? Yes, he is. Yeah, so he obviously lost the Red Bull one following the ban and everything else. Yeah. Um, so anyway, he then goes on to compete in the Formula 3 World Cup in 2017, which is a one-off race at the Macau Grand Prix. And he qualified 6th and finished 8th in the qualifying race and then uh, claimed victory somewhere in there as well. So, yeah, he then got a full-time seat in the FIA European Formula 3 where he, I think it was teammates to Mick Schumacher that... Oh, no, that's where he got absolutely decimated by Mick Schumacher in the second half of the season. So, again, Tickton comes out, the, comes out the blocks blindingly fast for the first part of the season and his pace just evaporates for the mm. second half, which he's got a really good habit of doing. Um, I'm looking at his stats for a lot of his seasons. First half of the season, he's winning. Second half of the season, nothing. Literally nothing. He, he doesn't improve. <laughs> which is just bizarre um, but yeah he got destroyed in um, Formula 3 by Mick Schumacher and he lost his shit um, I don't know if you saw some of his press releases that he made in there he was basically accusing them of foul play and flouting rules and all this kind of shit so he's a bad and, loser like, to boot yeah essentially yeah so uh, yeah he wasn't happy you know wasn't happy at all um, and then he comes to Formula 2, and he's been a bit of a pissy little shit, if I'm being honest. And apologies to anyone who's a Ticton fan, but he has been a pissy little shit. And he's basically... Now, if it's not going his way, he's complaining and all this kind of shit, and yeah. I'm fairly sure I overheard a radio message in a race last year. So bearing in mind, this guy's ban was 2015. There was a radio message last year where he openly threatened or suggested to his team that he was going to crash into someone if he did something like that again. And whilst that's never a cool thing to say at the best of times, when you have form, when you have done this and have been banned for this sort of shit, do you know what? Keep your mouth shut. Yes, and you are correct. He did. Um, they, they sort of skirt over it in his in his thing, uh, in like all of his sort of history. They always skirt over that, but he did. He come out and said, "Oh, I'm going to go and crash into this guy." And it's just like, have you really just said that? Bearing yeah. in mind you've already been suspended and banned for this sort of shit, you come yeah. out and say it again. It was something very specific, though, wasn't it? It was something like, if he does that to me again, I'm going to take him out of the race. Or if he tries yes. that with me again, I'll have him, I'll take him out or something. It, was, it wasn't just an open, I'll crash into him, because I suspect he would have been pulled up for that. But it, the intent was so obvious and clear, he made no intent to hide it. Yeah, I think that was... It, now, it's, it's one of... Because he was in a bit of a fight with three drivers... Uh, I think they're all still racing in yeah, was Formula it, 2. Was it at Silverstone? Was it the Silverstone race? I'm pretty sure. Yeah, it's got to be around that point in the season. Was it Gangyul Zhou? Or I probably butchered his name and I apologise. Oh, Gangyul Zhou, the, uh, the Renault development driver. Yeah, him. Um, 
I mean, it could have been Theo Pacher or Marcus Armstrong because he was having a good fight with them that season. I have a feeling it might have been Grand Uzo and Callum Eilat was running up there at the same time and it was coming through the last complex, the last few corners onto the new pit straight. I, yes, I still call it the new pit straight because I remember old school Silverstone. And I'm sure there was a coming together there, potentially after a safety car or a virtual safety car. Yes, yeah. Um just i'm trying to see where it is oh well hang on hang on i found an auto sport article where he's claimed it was taken out of context Uh, where are we here we go Tickton was heard fuming over the radio after claiming he nearly had a collision with Haas formula one junior louis delatraz when battling for position next time that it's all bleeped out i presume fucker or something pulls a kamikaze move like that i'm going to crash with him i tell you that is what tictum said to his engineer i will never give him that much respect ever again and so he's then had to go on record and say i wanted to clarify that one of my radio messages has been taken out of context i gave a lot of space had i not done we would have come together in no way did i mean i wanted to crash with him well, you can see why people would think you did might want to crash with him, Dan, you bellend. If you make a statement that says if he does that again, I'm going to crash with him. Yeah. <laughs> you can't just come out and say those things without there being almost some form of repercussions. That's just that's ridiculous. Not when you've got this kind of history and background with it as well. It's just unreal. If the guy wants to go anywhere in his career, he needs to get some decent PR support. He needs to get in touch with Lewis and get the PR guys that he had back in the day because they clearly worked for him. But that what... was uh, Simon Cowell's management. Uh... <laughs> was it really? <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Yeah. I'll tell you what I will say. Not that I'm a big fan of redirecting any potential viewers to other people's streams, but there are some really good stuff out there. If anyone is interested, Josh Ravel does a great video called What the Fuck Happened to Dan Tictum. It is, what, 10, 11 minutes long? It's a good 10 or 11 minute watch. I'd highly recommend, if anyone wants to know what's going on with Dan Tictum in his career, where he's been, why it's happened, go and give Josh's video a watch. Do you know what? I'll, I'll even link that in the description below the video because I, I I've seen that. And it's good. Yeah, it, it, it is fantastic to watch. He does some really good coverage, actually. I, I'd highly advise actually just checking out his content. Yeah. Because there's some drivers currently in motorsport that people will know, and <laughs> they have found their way onto his channel, whether that be for good reasons or bad reasons. Yeah, it's yeah, it's entertainment at its finest. Well, rightly or wrongly, I always think that Josh Ravel was one of the driving forces that made uh, good old Lord Rags as important as he was. Oh, yeah, he's got his own merchandise line for Lord Rags, hasn't he? Has he really? Uh, yeah, I don't think you can get t-shirts and stuff with all this on. It's, it's remarkable. Absolutely remarkable. Um, oh. Who else have we got to sort of touch on? Um, what, on the current really grid? Weird. That sounds really weird. And Who I else should apologize. we touch? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. As my mum said, don't touch if you can't afford it. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, um, yeah. I, well, I tell you what. So, if we're talking about the current grid, there is uh, at least four. No, there's five drivers okay. actually. Okay. I. 
I think are a bit of a shout. Okay, well, let me first of all ask, so far this season, who is your standout driver of the season? Standout driver of the season so far. So far, yeah. I've got potentially two candidates. One in particular, but two in my mind. It's a really difficult one, actually, because my mind tells me that the standout drivers are the ones that are outperforming their car or outperforming their teammate. And on that basis, Lando Norris and Mick Schumacher would both be well up there. I would be tempted to give it to Charles Leclerc on the basis that, again, I think he's outperforming a fairly so-so Ferrari. He's had a couple of fastest laps as well this season, let's not forget. He has indeed. But the other outside shout for me would be Yuki Tsunoda, who he didn't have the best of um, times at Austria, but on the whole in his debut season, I think he's looked pretty handy. He's got... Uh, do you know what? He, and this is something that uh, he reminds me in parts of Kamui Kobayashi. Because, uh, <laughs> I uh, knew you were going to say there's, Kobayashi. <laughs> there's, there's, there's something about the way, and I don't know why, but it seems to be a pattern with Japanese drivers. But they, when it comes to overtaking, will banzai it up the inside. You know, that, <laughs> and they like. Don't, how many times did we see Kobayashi launching it up the inside and pulling off these audacious moves? I mean, some of them went wrong. Let's not forget. <laughs> yes, they did. Yes, they <laughs> some did. Of them went, some of them went <laughs> catastrophically wrong. <laughs> but. Sonoda has got that about him, but Kamui was kind of more humble. Yuki, I think he sets himself a very high bar. He's never happy. He's always yeah. like, even when he finished, he finished, what did he finish in Baku? P7 in Baku's best result. And yet he, after the race, he still said he could have achieved more. Yeah. And you just, it, it, I, I think that will stand him in good stead for the future as long as the Red Bull driver program doesn't sink its teeth into him too much because we've seen this before and then they just become deflated shells of the former selves yeah well I mean god there's Danny Kvyat, Pierre Gasly Alex Albon you know take your pick Um, it's it's too early yeah Jean-Eric Verne stands out yeah well Sebastian Um, Bourdais for that matter then Sebastian Bourdais, uh, Buemi. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he was widely tipped to go into the Red Bull seat. Yeah. That never happened. Um, God, who else did we have? Well, uh, it was Shane the... Al Jaswari. Yeah, there was Al Jaswari. <laughs> who's, who's now the music DJ, just for anyone out there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I uh, love that. Who was, the, was the, who was the New Zealander? Oh, Brendan Hartley. Brendan Hartley, thank you. Yeah. yeah. I, I was devastated for him. I I had such high hopes. He was coming off the back of this amazing stint in World Endurance. Mm. And just he just never clicked. Mm. He just never picked up that car in the same way that his teammate did. And ultimately got destroyed. I, I think he was at one point lauded the king of P11. Because did he not have a number of P11 finishes? I think he did, <laughs> he yeah. was a, he was always on the fringes, but never quite there. Yeah. Was that twenty? Was that twenty nineteen? 
No, it's got to be further back than that, surely. Um, yeah, it, no, yeah, it's got to be, what, 2018? I actually think 2014 to 2016, somewhere around about there. But, you know, I'm getting old now, so my my memory of the passage of time is... is 2018. Here we go, 2018. Um, so, Brendan Hartley picked up four points that season. Finished 19th out of 20 in the standings. Uh, the only person lower than him was Sergei Sirotkin. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, yeah. That's a name I want um, to forget. Uh, yeah. Um, but, yeah, Brendan Hartley, he say finished... Uh, he only finished P11, actually, twice. So, yeah. So, I mean... It's, to be honest, I mean these guys. These guys getting outscored by Marcus Ericsson. I mean that's. And you uh... see, Marcus Marcus Ericsson is one of the drivers that I really disliked, almost actively disliked. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was not a fan. I was not sold on him. He didn't really achieve anything in junior categories. Yeah. Um... Full on pay driver that that never really had the skill or requirements to be there. Yeah, uh, yeah. The only titles he won was the his first single seat of experience, the Formula BMW UK Championship. Ooh. Yeah, he won that back in two thousand and seven, and then he won the J Japanese Formula Three series in two thousand and nine, and never won a title again. Mm. <laughs> He's currently seventh in IndyCar standings. Just yeah, saying, I did spot that, but again pissing off all the Americans that might be listening it's just going round and round in circles <laughs> yeah I mean he won at Detroit I mean that was largely due to an accident for someone else so eh, is it a legitimate result uh, I, yeah I, yeah. I mean when you finish behind Marcus Erickson though that's yeah I just, <laughs> the I mean, writing on the wall uh, Lance Stroll finished behind him that season. He's still on the F1 grid. Uh, um, but you, you see... Know, Stroll racing, you know. I have very strong opinions on Lance Stroll. He's pulled off a couple of okay moves, but again, I don't think he warrants a place on the grid. I think there are better drivers than Lance Stroll out there not being given a chance because he's got a lot of money behind him. Yeah, he has. And it, to be honest, he's in the position of power now. And we're not going to see that change for yeah. quite some time. I mean, Lance Stroll, he's what, not, was he 24 or something like that? He's 22. So yeah, I, I'm over egging it. He's, he's, he's fucking young. Yeah, yeah, he's not going anywhere. God. Yeah. Yeah. 22. Yeah. He's, he's not going anywhere for some time. And uh, it's a bit of a shame. I, well, I, I think so. I think so. Because, like I say, I think there are better options out there. But I'm going to move on from the depressing because I'm conscious we've been uh, we've been chatting for a long old while and we probably need to think mm. about wrapping this up. I yes. have a big question for you to finish. Oh God! Okay, go on. Mick Schumacher. Yes. Is he here as an also ran? Is he here on the back of his dad's reputation, or has he got something about him? What's your opinion? Uh, okay, honest opinion. I think he's got something about him. I think he handles himself with a certain grace. Um, I think 
a lot of drivers, if they'd come through with a father such as his, <laughs> would be a lot more big-headed and pig-headed as to where they should and shouldn't be. But he seems to have come in with the support of his, you know, his mum, Karina Schumacher, uh, you know, and I think he's handled himself very well. Uh, With all the pressure that comes with it, he's not rushed himself. He's not pushed himself to just jump up the ladder. He's always taken that extra season if he needs it to round himself out. And he's been quite very similar to his dad he's been quite methodical about his the way he goes about things um like you take his formula four season that first season when he made his debut in single seaters back in 2015 Mm. there were a lot of question marks left there because he finished 10th overall in the season and didn't really achieve any standout races he won a race but it wasn't like a standout, oh my god, look at this guy, he's going to be like his dad, you know. But then he he stayed on for another season, and in doing so, he improved vastly, Um, and he finished runner-up that season in in the standings. But, like, his race performances and everything just went up tenfold. And I think he's surrounded himself with the right people as well. Um, He's been part of the Prima team, all through the junior categories. Okay. Um, so his second season was his beginning of a relationship with the, the Prima uh, power team, as they call themselves. Um, and that was in Formula 4. He stayed with them into Formula 3, where the first season, again, you kind of there was a lot of question marks, 12th overall at the end of the season, mm. with just one, one podium finish out of 30 races. You kind of think, oh, okay, maybe, yeah, maybe that's his limit, his talent limit has reached... He stayed on for another season and wins the title. He took fucking one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Took suddenly just the second half of the season, whatever it is, he just settled and took eight race wins and three second places. Uh, won the title. And he's then done the same in Formula 2. There's a bit of a pattern, really. There the is. First season, the first season is always a bit meh like so the first season in formula 2 he took one win and that was his only podium all season and there he finished 12th overall but then the second season goes and wins the title uh i i i think he's definitely got some talent i and i like that he's not letting su- like because nikita mazepin is a powerful personality mm. uh, uh, rightly or wrongly he is and you know, there's a lot of things that Nikita has done off track as well that are very questionable. Oh yeah. Um, oh yes. Let's, yeah, and, I'm not, I don't think I want to open that can of worms tonight. But no. for anyone who knows, yes, and it's despicable. It is absolutely despicable. But with everything that's gone on, whenever he's been in the spotlight, Mick has handled himself. I I I, I genuinely believe that he's handled himself very professionally very maturely um you know and it's quite clear to see that the love for his dad and everything is the main driving force behind him doing what he does mm-hmm. um uh, there was an instagram post i think formula one the, the actual formula one instagram posted up a picture and it was basically a question to all the fans 
who is your F1 hero? And Mick Schumacher replied to that and said, my dad with a love heart. And I just thought, you know what? That says a lot about this guy. Like He absolutely adores his dad. Yeah. Uh, I, I legitimately think he is there with talent. He's not He's not rushed himself. Like A lot of drivers would have just one season in each formula. Bosh, 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 formula one, let's go. Yeah. He's taken his time to understand the series that he's in. And he's legitimately wanted to progress on merit via results than just using his dad's name. And not every driver would have done that. Um, yeah, I, yeah, I rate him. I rate him. I think he'll be one for the future. Uh, you can't really tell at the moment in the dog shit car, but yeah. compared, <laughs> compared to his benchmark, which is his teammate, he's destroying Nikita. Yes, uh, so yeah, that's true. Let, you know, I know Nikita finished ahead of him at Monaco. However, I would like to say on that note uh, that obviously at one point Mick was 30 seconds ahead of Nikita, had something go on, had to pit, came out and was 30 seconds behind Nikita and across the line he was right with him again. Yeah. So he's, he's, he's lost a minute's worth of time and is still actually caught back up to his teammate, which doesn't, doesn't look good for Nikita, but he's not going anywhere with, with you know with the money but um i don't know oh are your thoughts different i think he's there legitimately but i don't know if you have a more controversial opinion than me when have you ever known me to have a controversial opinion so um interestingly in another one of those very rare occasions we are in complete agreement i i think i think he is there on his own merits i think he don't get me wrong i'm gonna i'm gonna readjust what I said he's there partly on merit by his family name you know yes. people will have given yeah. him and this is it's cousin David isn't it Ralph's son um they oh, both yes. will have got a buy-in partly because of the money behind them from their dads and partly because of their name that's got their foot in the door but for for Mick certainly I don't know a great deal about David and how his career is going but for Mick certainly he has progressed up the ranks using his own merit his own performance and his own skill and talent. And I completely agree with what you're saying. In season one, he's there or thereabouts, but he's nothing special. He looks like he might be able to have a flash in the pan. And then actually what he's doing is he's constantly improving. He's learning. He's bettering himself. And then the next season, he blows him out of the water. Don't expect to see that in F1. <laughs> he's, he's, no. he's not world champion next year in waiting. I, I very much doubt that. But... Um, but yeah, I think he's got a decent career ahead of him. And the day will come, almost certainly, where he will end up in the Scarlet Red of Ferrari. Yeah, I, I think that's definitely going to happen. I mean, I, I'm glad you actually brought us on this because there was actually something I wanted to bring up about Mick. Uh, so uh, reading up and talking to a few people that uh, are working in the paddock, there are grumblings in the paddock that uh, he's going to be moved to Alfa Romeo next season. That is the rumour. So it's an interesting one because who the hell would he replace at Alfa Romeo? So I I actually heard this rumour starting last year. So there was a lot yeah. of discussion about whether he was going to go to Alfa or Haas. And it was right up until the, the sort of the deadline moment it was announced he was going to Haas when it was felt he was going to go to Alfa. Um, what no one was ever being clear on was whether that was Geo stepping down or contract not being renewed or Kimi retiring. 
either, considering Alpha's current position, either are very good, very strong possibilities. And, you know, there's an argument, we've made this same argument ourselves here tonight about keeping that stability in a team at the management level. There is something to be said about it at drivers as well. Haas yes. had some okay times with Kevin Magnussen and, and Roman Grosjean, but they were never going to be world champions with that driver lineup and the car as it was. Um, no. Equally, they're not going to be world champions with Nikita Mazepin and Mick Schumacher and the car as it is now. But my suspicion is Mazepin's financial backing from Ural Kai and similar brings in more than probably Grosjean and Magnussen combined. So there's more yeah. money coming into the team to reinvest in the car going forward. So they're trying to play the long game. Mm, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, the thing is, like the way I see it, so if Mick did move to Alpha. Let's go on the proviso that Kimi comes out and says, yep, I'm retiring. My time in F1's done. Mm -hmm. And swans off to have another ice cream. Um, if that happens, I like, and Mick goes to Alpha, I don't see Giovinazzi as a team leader, and he would be the de facto team leader. I, I just... That would worry me. That would worry me. Um, I, yeah, I think if Mick was to go to Alpha, he'd be better placed to slot in alongside Kimi, even just for a season. So I, I would tend to agree with you. I think Kimi would be a much better mentor and uh, and teammate and leader for for Mick to work with. I don't see it happening. I think by time no. Mick is ready for that step into into the bigger, more powerful car, Kimi will already be stepping away. Yeah. I I, I mean, let's be real. The, the, the time's got to come for Kimi. As oh, much yeah. as it pains us. Because he is a legend. And <laughs> he's, he's one of those rare personalities of the grid. And, yeah. I, I mean, it'll be interesting to see. Because, I mean, Ferrari... I mean, it's, it's not like Ferrari haven't got youngsters to pick and choose from you know they, they've got plenty in their driver academy mm. um i mean the ones they've currently got in their academy uh marcus armstrong currently formula two callum Milo, as we've already discussed robert mm -hmm. schwartzman yeah uh and let's not forget arthur leclerc uh charles younger brother oh um, yes he, yeah he's in there yeah um i mean there's some more obscure ones that are in there that I question like whoever Dino Beganovic is that don't know him apparently he's a Swede uh, oh, and true. also uh, Maya Valg who's a well dual nationality female racer currently racing in Italian Formula 4 okay but that's it that's all they've got contracted now um, they've got rid of like uh, Giuliano Alessi He's no longer part of the Ferrari Driver Academy. Well, it's not a surprise. I mean, no. didn't yeah. we say that Jean Lacy had to sell his Ferrari F40 yes. in order to fund the continued progression because he wasn't wasn't getting the results? He was back at the grid, really, yeah. wasn't he? Yeah, he was. He was. In, what did he pick up? A handful of podiums, if that. Yeah. Uh, Enzo Fittipaldi, another one that has been dropped. He's been dropped. He's been dropped. Enzo, yeah, Enzo Ooh. Fittipaldi. That's, That's interesting. Not not Pietro, 
who made his F1 debut. No, but Emerson is still... It, this is still Emerson's grandson, or one of Emerson's yes. grandsons, isn't it? Yes, yeah. yes, that's correct, yes. So, yeah, he's been dropped. Um, and also, surprisingly, uh, uh, Montoya's son, Sebastian Montoya's also been dropped. Okay. So, uh, that's it. They're, they're left with a very small roster now. Because, um, I mean, they used to have people like Antonio Fuoco. Do you remember Fuoco? Um, um, only vaguely. Uh, I mean, he used to be pretty, pretty good hot shot in Formula 2. Um, but, yeah, I I don't know. I don't know. It's, yeah, it's going off on a bit of a tangent, I guess. But uh, they've got some... I mean, the, the ones that have still got are exciting talents. Um, two in particular, obviously, Schwartzman and Eilert. I, yeah. They are... They are definite future Formula One drivers. Although we have said that about people like Nick DeVries and that, oh yeah, definitely future F1 drivers and it never happens. But Well, I Ferrari, don't know. Fer- I think Ferrari are in a bit more of a a position of power because they've technically got two junior teams under them. Yeah, they do. Know, and that is a, a good thing to have if you're wanting to bring through the next phase of talent. I mean, they look what they've done with Charles, Charles Leclerc. Mm-hmm. nurtured him and now he's repaying them with his performances yeah and it's it's sad to say after thinking about the years of dominance they had but Williams not only do they not have a junior team they can be argued as a junior team of Mercedes because they're using a Mercedes power plant they've got a Mercedes driver in their car that we know is going to end up in that car at some point in the future so how the mighty have fallen in that respect. But I but I absolutely agree. Schwartzman and Eilot are definitely F1 stars of the future. And on the note of Nick DeVries not necessarily making it to F1, am I not right in saying that he has taken some free practice sessions and he is the official Williams reserve or test driver, isn't he? Uh, ooh. I, I, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Uh, I don't know because when did he win the title? Was it twenty nineteen? Would be twenty nineteen because Nick won it last year. Mm. Uh, so yeah, twenty nineteen. If we go to Nick DeVries, let's 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 have a look, just a quick look. Uh, okay, so he's he's listed as a reserve driver for Mercedes, but obviously that's yeah. a shared role with Stoffel Stoffel Van Dorn. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, I could have sworn he took some free practice sessions in the Williams last year. But I don't know uh, if they, you know, I don't know if there's actually a statistic anywhere that would show you who's taken those, because we know various drivers have done that. I mean, anyone else I've looked at, it's been on their wiki of when they've been test driver, uh, like in the free practice. I don't see any listed for him. I know he had a stint. Ah, no, McLaren he had a little stint with, didn't he? Because he was part of the McLaren Junior program from 2010. Um, see, I because he was in that animated series that McLaren released. Do you, do you remember that animated oh, series? Oh, Tuned? Yeah, that's I it. I yeah. do remember that. Yeah, Nick DeVries was in that as the little kid with Alec... What was his name? Fucking Armstrong's character, the professor. Uh, you know, I, he was in yeah. that because he was hotly tipped to sort of, you know, come into Formula One in a blaze of glory and do this, that, and the rest, and it never happened. Um, I still think it will. I still think it will. Um, I'm not sure when. I'm not sure where the opportunity comes from. But we know that 
some of the drivers on the grid are aging. There's no nice way to put that. You know, you think Alonso is going to be there a little bit longer. I'm not so sure. I think Alonso is about to hang up those racing boots. Um, I think Seb could be in his last season as well. Yeah, I mean, Alonso's deal runs until the end of next season. So he's got that first season of the regulations Mm -hmm. with Alpine. Uh, And then, yeah, maybe he'll step back again or go and attempt Indy again. You know, he obviously he wants that Indy 500 win. So Mm. I I see him just going back to that, giving it another go. So here's a thought. We both think Bossas is gone at the end of this season and George Russell's going to get that spot. Yeah. It's possible. (laughs) It's possible that Bottas might go back to Williams. I don't think he'd want to, but Williams might say there's a seat here available for you, Sunshine. If that doesn't work, and as long as he pays enough money to keep Latifi comfortable, I wonder if Nick DeVries might get that Williams seat that George Russell vacates. Oh, that's a good shout, isn't it? That's a good shout. He could could well do. He could do. He could do. Um... Oh man! You wouldn't bet against it, would you? No, I, I, yeah, no, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to put my, you know, worldly life on that. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it is a possibility. Um, I mean, I'd like to see De Vries get a chance. I, I just mm. hope, I hope upon hope that next year's Williams is a good car. Um. <sighs> I wouldn't even like to guess. I think Mercedes no, are throwing a lot at it, and I think they'll be up there. Um, yeah. Looking down yeah. the rest of the grid, I honestly um, couldn't tell you who's developing next year's car well, well enough. I, I, you see, and this is this is what concerns me with Haas because Haas subcontract their chassis design and their aero designs to Delara. Mm. It's not in house. They're the only team that do this. And although initially that ethos, that business model worked when they first came in, I think what we've seen, though, is that substantial lack of just being able to persistently develop their own car. Because they're kind of hampered by relying on this other outside entity to do it for them. Now, they're saying, and they already said that last year... Uh, they had already, they hadn't even bothered with this year's car. Just literally, it was going to be to this year's specs. There's going to be nothing coming for it, um, and that's it. Uh, so their focus is purely on next year's car. But I just, I don't like the idea of an external source making my chassis and that for me because if it's shit, you're going to have a <laughs> world of pain trying to rescue it. And look at them; they have had a world of pain trying to rescue it. Yeah, but I think that the problem for for Haas is actually double that. The chassis is absolutely a concern, but equally, that engine's not an in-house unit. They're a Ferrari customer getting Ferrari customer engines. So Mm -hmm. if we look at next year, for example, so we are, 3rd of July is today's date. We are looking towards the 2022 car, which they'll be starting to test in, what, March, April time next year. Maybe a bit earlier, maybe February. Uh, 
at this stage, not only do they not know what that chassis is going to look like, they actually don't know anything about the Ferrari engine. They don't know where the center of gravity is going to be. They don't know what the unsprung mass of that weight is going to be over the rear springs. So they can't even give Delara a clear steer on how to design these factors into the car in order to make it aerodynamic wide enough you know all of that stuff is going to be done lastminute.com as soon as ferrari give them an engine to work with and the two combined do not make for a for, you know a good car that's going to be competitive no no and that that's concerning uh, well more so for mick yeah because i is he not under he's under contract isn't he for a couple of seasons with Haas, um from what i understand well um, i'd assume so but on the basis that he's a ferrari young driver I'm gonna. I'm willing to bet that if Ferrari said he's moving to Alpha, that he would just move, and they'd put Schwartzman in that car. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 I yeah. Ferrari hold a lot of power in what could happen. Mm. To be honest, um, we we are approaching the end of an era, though. With like, say, with a number of drivers, uh, it'll be interesting to see which ones go, which ones stick around for maybe longer than they should because there's always that thin line of staying on a bit too long <laughs> um well yeah. there is there is and you know i'm conscious we we should uh, think about drawing this to an end and normally i'd leave on a high i'm going to leave or close this down with a really depressing thought how many years do you think formula one has got left in it as a racing series Oh, yeah. Um, in its current form, on its current trajectory, a decade. I that. I think that's probably somewhere about right. So don't get me wrong. Formula One is already using hybrid. They're one point six liter V six turbo hybrid engines. So they're significantly less gas guzzling than the V8s, V10s and V12s that we had in the 80s and the 90s and beyond. Yes. We are having this conversation, you and I, Steve, from the UK. And the current rules in the UK are saying that from 20, the year 2030, there will be a national ban on the sale of brand new petrol and diesel cars. <clears throat> we will move to hybrid, electric hydrogen, alternative fuels, whatever you want to call them, and that will be it. There will be no more future. Now, that doesn't mean petrol cars will disappear from the road in 2030, because no, yeah. it just means you can't buy any new ones. People these days are keeping cars 10, 15, sometimes 20 years, and there's also the classic market, you know, those old classic MGs and Porsche 911s. We're not going to say they have to be electrified. That's bullshit. So there's still going to be some architecture in the country, but Bit by bit, you're going to start to see, whereas your your town might have 15, 20, 100 petrol stations, they're going to start becoming fast charge electric spots. They're going to pull the pumps out, they're going to pull the tamps out of the ground, and they're just going to have rows and rows and rows of electric chargers, because that infrastructure for petrol is not going to need to be there anymore. But I digress somewhat. If you think that's what we're about and formula one talks about the fact that they are developing tires clutches gearboxes technology that goes into road cars that's part of the payoff for these manufacturers yes well they aren't doing that 
with petrol V6 turbo hybrids if we're not able to purchase any form of petrol V6 turbo hybrid. So the only future can surely be electrification or alternate fuel. Yeah, yeah. And I hate to say it, and I'm sure there'll be people out there that are Greenpeace fans and, and lovers of the environment that will think I'm an absolute arsehole for saying this, but that is probably where I will lose my love for F1 because I can't get on board with electric racing. It just doesn't do it for me. It doesn't tick the boxes. It's the noise. It's this losing noise and sound is one of those major senses like sight and smell and touch. If you go and stand in a Formula One paddock, you smell the fuel, you hear the cars. If they're electric, if you go and stand in a Formula E paddock, you don't smell the fuel and you don't hear the cars, or at least what you hear sounds like your mum's um, your mum's kitchen mixer turning on. It, it's not a powerful sound, and it loses a huge amount of interest for me. Well, I, I think that's proven as well. Um, I mean, the outcry for the engine sound when we changed to what we've got. Yeah. Uh, and I think that was hammered home even more. Let's rewind. End of last season. Fernando Alonso in his title winning Renault hammering around that track hmm. yeah. and all of the young drivers were on the pit wall videoing that and and when they were asked about it going oh my god did it really sound like this and it's like yes that's that's the era that you guys have missed out on you haven't had that and even Hamilton said my god I wish I had that sound back hmm. and everyone is asking for it and even Ross Braun, who's now the technical advisor for Formula One, has acknowledged it. Yeah. The only positive about the lack yeah. of sound in the cars has been, I've heard the drivers say they like the fact that they can now hear their engineer and vice versa. But that's the only positive. And I'd forgotten, yeah. I'd forgotten about what you were saying about the, um, the sound. Because I remember the first year... They had the turbo hybrids. They tried to fix it mid-season. And basically oh. what they did was they put those really crappy sort of trumpets on the back on the of the exhaust. <laughs> I've yeah. forgotten all about them. They were horrendous. And, and they were investing a lot of money in that. Yeah. <laughs> and none of it helped. No. None of it helped. Not and, one bit. I mean, like what? Like, okay, so we went with hybrid turbos. But why was the sound so shit? Because that's what baffles me. Because all you could hear is the turbo whirring away, you know, and the electric motor. Mm. You just think, well, we, there should still be a way to do that. And I'm sure with the tech heads in Formula One, there should have been a way to negate that. Um, because the view, like, you know, people did leave Formula One behind because of it. Yeah. And, uh, and, and people will continue to do so. Oh, they will do. They will do. And uh, uh, one that we'll touch on next episode um, is across the pond, where they're going to have the same issues. And I think I mentioned it to you already, so um, a little while ago, about their plans, which in America is never going to go down well. So, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, I guess let us know in the comments below if those of you watching this... Uh, have sort of made it all the way through. Let us know what you think the future for Formula One is and Christ. where it's going to go. And if you've um, made it all through, you deserve a medal because we've been talking a long, old while. 
We have, and we, we, we distinctly moved away from any other form of motorsport straight to F1. <laughs> yes, we did. Yeah, yeah. Apologies if that wasn't what you came here for. We'll, uh, we'll maybe try and do something about that. Maybe next time we'll have, like, um, no, you can set on YouTube little markers in the timeline, can't you, about when the conversation yes. switches. Maybe we'll do something that says that. It'll probably be five minutes BTCC, five minutes MotoGP, an hour and a half Formula One. <laughs> well, give the fans what they want. Absolutely. <laughs> Um, yeah, it's, oh, I guess that's kind of, I guess, brought us to a nice end. Um, so yeah, guys, if this is something you want to see more of, or you want to voice some opinions you want us to consider, chuck them down below. Um, we're more than happy to, I think, to consider other viewpoints and have a good sort of discussion around those. Absolutely. Um, and I think next time as well, we're going to have a bit more to talk about because we're kind of, is this, is this the last of the triple headers in Formula One? because uh, we had France, question. Austria and now Austria again so that is the triple header and then afterwards we're also going to have to talk about this new format for the Silverstone Grand Prix um, so that's all to come for the next episode um, obviously the first of the sprint race format for qualifying so yeah, yeah a lot to discuss and uh, we might have a bit of a clearer idea if, as to where Red Bull Mercedes are going to be as well going into that. So, yeah. And going back to what you were saying about triple headers, it looks to me like we have a triple header between Russia, Turkey and Japan coming up in October. But something else we should wow. discuss is, of course, the proposed change to the Russian Grand Prix venue where it will no longer be held at Sochi after this year. Yeah, I, I think we need to delve into that because there's, there's some conflicting opinions around that, shall we say. Mm. There is. Um, we'll have a good chat about tracks as well because there's some other ones I want to pick up on. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, um, guys, I think that's going to round this off for tonight. Uh, well, today, tonight, wherever you are in this time of the world. Um, yeah, um, like I say, hit that like, subscribe button if you want to see more. Uh, and we'll have some more discussion around this in the next episode. Um, so for me, that's going to be a, have a good evening and goodbye. And. And for... Any final words? Oh, I've got loads of them, but I'll stick with thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, I hope you enjoyed our content, and I hope to see you again next time. Take care. Take care. Bye bye. <laughs>